And I was thinking the subject for today would basically be a tale of two worlds because we'll talk Forge World and then mm-hmm. Siege World. We we still have. I, I would do want to put plugs in for the Citadel and at least talk about the experience there too because. It was a cool experience. Suck, a, ta- <laughs> a tale of three worlds, Warhammer World, Forge World, and Siege World. Sure, I don't know if this is actually Warhammer World, though. No. You're messing with the flow, Dennis. I am. God damn. I'm just dropping a siddle in the middle of the battlefield. Dropping them hot beats. God damn it, Bobby. Damn it, Bobby. Welcome to Preferred Enemies, the Undercover Network, Warhammer 40k Podcast. I'm your host, Rob. Kevin. Dennis. And Richard. And this is episode 180. And this episode, we are, uh, we're taking a break from codexes. We'll get to you other codexes that have been, that have come out. But, uh, we're going to talk about some things that have gone down since our last, since our last recording. And that will include talking about the Warhammer Citadel, talking about the Forge World uh, changes and pricing, and talking about my experience at the Siege World Apocalypse game, uh, which some of you may know about from the videos I've posted, but I figure there's more people who listen to the podcast than are on our Facebook page, and you should be on our Facebook page, just saying. But uh, we figured that that will be our main topic this time around. Uh, in the meantime, we, ha- of course, have news and new releases and your listener mail, so we'll get right into that. And news and new releases, um, really, there hasn't been a lot. I mean, there have been a few things announced, like uh, we talked about uh, the Speed Freaks and the new buggy uh, last episode, and that is still confirmed to be coming out in October. Yeah. Uh, in fact, we had the Nova Open le- last week, as of recording time, we had the Nova Open... Uh, the studio reveal, and I have to say, at least on the uh, 40K side, there wasn't a lot revealed that we didn't already know about. It was just more confirming things that had already been announced. So let's see. We know Orcs are coming in October. We know Speed Freaks is coming. It's a new board game. It's going to have, looks like, two or three big new buggies and some bikes in it and a warlord on a buggy. He uh, yeah. looks pretty boss. Yeah, the the war boss <laughs> on a trike yeah. looks pretty sweet. Yeah. Let's see. We know sisters are coming sometime next year. They showed us some of the heads that have been developed since then, which they've got a nice blend of helmeted and unhelmeted, uh, hooded and unhooded, different haircuts, things like that. So they've definitely they're modeling some neat pieces uh, and they confirmed that uh, the sisters codex is getting a beta version in chapter approved that will have relics and stratagems and it sounds like order rules for like the different orders of sisters mm-hmm. so their chapter nice. tactics basically Neat. so that'll be coming in in december uh we haven't had any word on a new faq yet i think uh, they confirmed the night perceptor model which is the one night model from the codex that hasn't been released yet is coming and they announced the one thing new they did announce was uh we're getting a warhammer quest board game set in 40k which is warhammer quest blood or blackstone fortress not much known beyond that, although I imagine it's going to be very similar to Silver Tower or what's the other one? Shadows over Hammerhall. Yeah, I think. Yeah. So yeah, Shadows over Hammerhall. Yeah. So we'll uh, so we'll see what's coming with that. Also, uh, for Kill Team, they've announced a army builder type app similar to the War Scroll Builder for Fantasy and the Combat Roster Builder 
for 40k such as that one is now i'm hoping this one's going to be kind of a middle step because for kill team it's going to have to include points it's going to have to include war gear Mm -hmm. so that's that has to be coming so we'll see what see what's coming down the pipe but they're really pushing uh they're pushing the organized play for kill team which is cool Uh, i'm looking forward to uh starting up a kill team campaign league at our local store and i know uh so that at Pulp Fiction, we're going to be starting one, and I know there's one starting down at Peculiar Game and Hobby, which just celebrated their second anniversary, by the way. Congratulations to Pat and family who are uh, running that store and have built quite the 40K community, so give them a shout-out. And uh, let's see. Oh, and Rogue Trader is coming, which is the uh, expansion for Kill Team that is involves a Rogue Trader and her crew versus a bunch of Nurgle mutants. And they have announced that it is going to be a dual product because it will support Kill Team and Standard 40K. That's interesting. I just know on the Warhammer Communities page, I saw the models. I really like that Rogue Trader team up there. They do look really neat. And the Nurgle models look awesome, too, yeah. if, if you're into that yeah. kind of thing, which I know you're not, Dennis. But No. <laughs> I, I, I don't know. The, the doctor there kind of reminds me of Dr. Horrible, and I think that's one of the things I liked. And I think there's an Electro guy on there, too. And there's the, the armor is just so fancy and broke looking. Yeah, yeah, it's very different than like the you know standard Space Marine or Guard stuff. It's it's not quite so utilitarian. So that's kind of cool. Let's see. So cur- curious to see what those are going to look like in standard 40k. Uh, three strength, three toughness, and, and no di- armor, and die a lot, <laughs> and die a lot. <laughs> die a lot. Yeah. yeah. Well, what I hope is that they don't do is that they make them all like specialists and like make them super expensive, which I think might happen just kind of disappointing but uh, yeah it'll, it'll be interesting to see and i and depending on how that implementation goes it opens up the possibility for a lot of other uh sub factions because like if this works well then maybe inquisition gets a mini codex maybe you put uh humans as a codex or something or you put like squats and uh beastmen and reset stuff like the that. clock well, stuff that's existed. In, Actually, no, the uh, clock exists the now. The clock's in, already uh, broken, right? Uh, oh, right. They broke the clock because there's the uh, Forge World, uh, yeah. the for, for Necromunda. the Necromunda Necrom- squat mercenary. So, yeah. clock is yeah. clock's busted there. Fair enough. So, like, but, but you know, may, maybe they take some of that stuff from Necromunda and they they go, okay, here we're going to make these households into 40k mini factions or something. I don't know. It could be interesting. There could be a lot of possibilities with that. So yeah, it'll be it'll be interesting to see. Yeah, and again, yeah, the idea of bringing more micro factions into 40k, similar to the way Sigmar is. So yeah. yeah, it'll be. I'm curious to see how that pans out. I I don't know about the the battle zones they have compared, or the kill team kill zone. I guess kill zones. Kill zones is what they call the mm-hmm. the kill zones for that. Look a little sparse with like just the doorways. It looks very Necromunda board game, like 2D Necromunda style so Mm -hmm. we'll have to see how that plays out but uh yeah yeah. however there okay there is one thing that came out actually after we recorded but before the book came out and that's the space (laughs) space wolf warlord traits yes so uh these they they caught this like they released this like two days before the codex actually hit shelves and they announced that yeah the warlord uh trait page it's like we were we got it done and we sent it off to the English printers and then we're like you know what we need to change this up to make it more space wolfy and make it feel like more legendary and so we'll get that in the non English versions but the English one's already out for, out to print and we don't want to trash all the copies so we'll just release it as a 
We'll just release it as a, a PDF. Hey, I'm glad that they're they're admitting and making those mostly making those changes because I think the new Warlord trait things are a blast compared to what they could have been in the English. Regular, yeah, the English trait. version, like I said, they were just kind of very stock, vaguely bland Warlord traits. Uh, so let's just imagine cutting this and pasting it into our Codex review. So, so, <laughs> so, so for those of you with audio equipment, cut this section out and paste it into the previous episode. It's like an old school chapter approved. Exactly. <laughs> so the, the six Warlord traits and, and the mechanic behind this is if, uh, like other Warlord traits, a Space Wolf Saga grants a powerful advantage and is active on your Warlord at all times. However, unlike other Warlord traits, from the end of a phase in which your Warlord performs a Deed of Legend, which is different on different sagas. The saga also affects space wolf, friendly Space Wolves units within six inches of your warlords. Basically, it turns all of these into a six-inch bubble if you pull off the elite, the if you pull off the deed of legend that's attached. And is that six-inch bubble just for one turn, or is it for the rest of the game? This effect lasts for the rest of the battle. Okay. So once once you do the thing, it's it's basically <laughs> goes into into beast mode effectively. So, uh, first, first one, Saga of the Warrior Born. You always choose for a unit affected by the Saga to fight first. So they basically get Slanesh Demon Power. <laughs> that's what it, I mean, hey, I that's, know, where that, that, that's where it started. That's where it started. So yeah. it is the Slanesh Demon Power on uh, the Space Wolves. The Deed of Legend is to slay an enemy character with your Warlord. Okay. Hmm. Or it's High Elf Power. High Elf Power? Yeah. Okay. So they, they high- always fight. So they always fought yeah, first. Always yeah. fought so the high elves are Slanesh as well now. Okay, got it. <laughs> uh, not exactly, but sure. Not, yeah. Uh, number two, Saga well, of the Wolf. Slanesh are just high elves. <laughs> Dude. <Yeah. laughs> so high. <laughs> Except they're high on like PCP. They're aggro. It's like PCP yeah. and bath salt. Am I wrong? With a little Not bit of Viagra thrown in. <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> oh, God. <laughs> the worst drug combo ever. PCP, bath salts, and Viagra. <laughs> <laughs> Don't worry, kids. It's a family-friendly podcast. <laughs> Let's see. Number two, Saga of the Wolfkin. If a unit is affected by the Saga in the fight phase, add one to the attack's characteristic of all model, all of its models if it made a charge move, was charged, or perform a heroic intervention e- earlier in the same turn and deed of legend slay a total of five models in the fight phase with your warlord for, and you keep a tally from turn to turn so it's over the length of the game if you kill five models so you want to charge him into an infantry unit and murder things right let's see saga of majesty number three if a unit is affected by this saga they automatically pass morale tests in addition if their character increased the range of any R abilities they have by three by, or by three inches, excluding explodes, healing bombs, battlesmith, <laughs> effects of relics of the fang, and effects of psychic powers. Which means if you kick this on, it becomes a nine inch bubble of pass morale. Because nice. it is an or it becomes an aura ability. So uh but to pull it off, you have to slay the enemy warlord with your warlord. So that's the one least likely to turn that's into a bubble. A little harder. That's a little harder yeah. and a character will always pass morale test because it's the only model in its unit. So, so this this is this is one where you have to kill something to get its benefit. Unfortunately, this is what Logan Grimnar has as his warlord trait. I want to say I think Bjorn also has yes, that one. Yes, Bjorn, Logan, and Njal all mm. have this as the warlord trait. So that's the trade off of they're really powerful characters and they have kind of a crap uh, warlord trait because it requires you to kill the warlord with your warlord to 
get the power, you know, to, to power it up. Uh, number four, Saga of the Beast Slayer. Add one to wound rolls for attacks made by a v- unit affected by the saga that target a monster or vehicle. Deed of Legend, slay an enemy monster or vehicle with your warlord. That sounds doable. Saga of the Hunter, a unit affected by this saga in your charge phase can charge even if advanced earlier in the turn. Successfully charge an enemy unit with your warlord to make that a bubble. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Too many we can't have multiple warlord traits and have them stack, because then you could build the ultimate assault unit. Oh, yeah. And nobody yeah. has this one. As, none of the named characters have this one. So this <laughs> is one you put on like a put on like a wolf lord on a, on a thunder wolf mount. Yep, that's what I was just thinking. Yep. <laughs> and then Saga of the Bear. Uh, this is basically six up, feel no pain. And Deed of Legend, successfully pass a saving throw for your warlord. That's probably going to be the most useful one. Yeah, and it's also the easiest one to kick on. Right. Because... Unless they decide they don't want to shoot you or they're only going to do mortal wounds to you. Well, y- your warlord, unless they're out in front, won't be taking shots anyway. Right. So it and might be hard to actually make that saving throw. That is true. You kind of have to put him out there. But again, this is an, the characters in this army all want to get into close combat anyway. So eventually you're going to be getting in a situation where this is going to happen. And uh, Arjak Rockfist has that one as a warlord trait. <laughs> oh, that totally makes sense for him. Uh, the characters who have Warrior Born and go first are Krom Dragon Gaze and Ragnar Blackmane. Also makes sense. And then uh, Wolfkin, Canis Wolfborn, Harold Death Wolf have that one, which also makes sense. Yeah. And then Ulrich the Slayer has Saga of the Beast Slayer. Also <laughs> yeah, makes sense. Makes sense. <laughs> yeah. So no, I like that, I like these traits much better. Yes, and I, I like that they they fit the heroes they're kind of already tied to as well. Yes. Yeah. So it's just uh, it just. It, it's a more interesting system. And I think that's that's one of the things I like about this the most is that most warlord traits we see after a while they just it, it, you know going back to sixth edition a lot of the warlord traits you would see would just like yeah these are nice but we see the same things over and over again. These I mean there's a couple that are recycled here like you know the six up feel no pain or the always acting first but the way they're tied in and then what makes them into an aura is what makes them interesting. Exactly. And it's good to have a, a a variety of mechanics like this, and it, it gives the army a bit more flavor. Which which I think is one thing that Space Wolves, despite the fact that their units, they have some very distinct units. Like we, I remember we did a Space Wolf Codex review. Gosh, probably the sixth edition one that we actually labeled Vanilla Ice because it was just like it was felt very boring, which it shouldn't. And I think this one, I, especially with the warlord traits here, I think they're they're hitting hitting where space wolves need to be and how it should feel. And other than that, oh, and uh, Adeptus Titanicus, uh, we, you know, we like I said we don't really play Adeptus Titanicus, but they did announce the Reaver Titan for that. So now you have two Titans to choose from, in addition to the Night Banners. So uh, they're slowly expanding that line. Also, the Warhound Titan has been shown, but isn't up for pre-order yet. So, uh, it, I imagine by the end of the year, you'll be able to buy all the main, all you know, like all the primary Titan lines, and then they'll mm-hmm. uh, start releasing the w- the weapon kits on Forge World as separate purchases. And I'm wondering if they're going to throw any of the additional knight types in as like Forge World specific purchases, like the. Serastus Knights or like the Perfurian would be a, a natural to drop in because that thing's damn near a Titan. It'll be interesting to see what comes with that line and, and where they go with that. Hopefully they'll eventually expand it to include uh, non-Imperium stuff because 
that it would it'd be nice to actually have rules for like you know stompas and mega gargants and things like that for uh for orcs or having yeah. having plastic or even small resin uh, phantom and revenant titans for eldar yeah that'd be super cool or a little tyranid bio titans yeah still a spindly half the cost yes <laughs> actually probably a quarter of the cost right you'd buy several more town art yeah <laughs> i could actually afford them at that scale <laughs> i wouldn't have to have you buy all my stuff for me <laughs> And with that, I think that's pretty much everything that's been announced. It, it's, you know, it it's just been you know confirmation of earlier announced things for the most part. Mm-hmm. So September, I have a feeling is might be more fantasy stuff unless they do fu- do surprises with Gene Steeler cults coming out later this month. Maybe, yeah, yeah possibly. Because with Tooth and Claw out now, I still think that they're it's the next army that has stuff out that isn't in either Index or Codex. At this point, so right. it need it, it's ready to be updated to include that. So hopefully, we'll see that, and then we've got a, a hard confirmed orcs in October. So, and by that, if if we get Gene Steeler cults in September and orcs in October, that will be all the main factions, not counting sisters. And sisters are confirmed for a beta codex mm-hmm. in December. So. I still think Inari should be somewhere. Inari will be somewhere, and that pamphlet will be awesome, I'm sure. But well, I'm just thinking it, people play it as it's a major faction. So. I, it, it is. Yeah. It is. Well, and I think, as I mentioned earlier with the mini codexes, I think Inari is right in that space of like being released as like a sub faction kind of codex to play with to to play with other ones. And I mean, I would love to see something like Corn Demon can come back in that function as well, where it's like. Hey, here are the rules to combine these two factions together, and it can be just a small mini codex. And like, hey, read read the stuff out of these books, but here's the rules to play it. You could easily do that with Yonari as well. Here's here's the list of units that are available. Here's the faction rules you get. Oh, which does remind me, this might actually it's technically Age of Sigmar, but it, it could have uh, ramifications for 40k as far as model lines go. They did announce for Age of Sigmar a new book called. Uh, uh, Wrath and Rapture, which is basically, it's Realms of Chaos, Wrath and Rapture. So it's like a callback to the old, the old Realms of Chaos books, and just like the first Realm of Chaos book, this one is Corn and Slanesh, and which means Slanesh is getting brought back in force to the uh, Age of Sigmar universe, which may mean new models for them for anything that hasn't been updated. So maybe like new plastic fiends would be nice. And a couple, cool. and maybe new options for heralds. The way everybody else has two or three plastic heralds. Well, and a keeper of secrets. Yeah, a new keeper of secrets would be that nice. That models. Too. That models trash. ancient and trash. <laughs> yes, and then just maybe a model that shoots. <laughs> That's not no. you know the demons no. only kind of shoot. You've got soul grinder. Stop complaining. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> You've got the same amount of shooting as everyone else in that army does, other than Corn. They have a gun strapped to a uh, skull throne. Well, it just feels like like Zinch has a little bit more, but I know theirs is all psychic shooting. As yeah. Well. well, I mean, you've got Brimstone, or you've got not Brimstone. You've got Pink Horrors, which have have shooting, and they've got Flamers. But that, that's like Zinch's thing. They have they make up for it for having like one assault unit. Granted, they're Screamers and they're pretty good. But yeah, so that that might have ramifications for 40k. So we'll see what happens with that book. I'm, I might pick that one up just so I can com- work on completing a set of Realm of Chaos books, since I have the old one and 
I think they're eventually going to reprint the the second old Realm of Chaos book that was Zinch and Nurgle. I hope so. Yeah, I mean, I think they've someone asked them about it and they kind of gave they kind of demurred a bit and like gave a non denial denial type thing. Right. Well, I asked them point blank when I was at Gen Con and they're like, yeah, maybe later. Yeah. <laughs> so. <laughs> so who knows? Yeah. I think it's common. It just may be a little bit. Right. They've, they've got other things that they're focusing on. Hopefully. I mean, it'd be nice to have books coming out from Forge World again. Yeah. Yeah. All right. So next is listener mail. And uh, as always, these letters are written by you, the listeners. And after we uh, finish going through this episode's batch, we'll tell you how you can send your letter in. So our first one is from Seth Charles Oster, and he writes, Howdy, P enemies. I wanted to see if you could help my gaming group get the word out on a contest we're running. My group, the Dangly Boys, and that's D-A-N-G-L-I-B-O-Y-Z, is challenging all other gaming groups in the U.S. to the Food for the Food God Challenge. We're running a food drive from the 1st to the 17th of November. Clubs that want to participate can document their donations to the local food bank and send them in to us at danglyboys, D-A-N-G-L-I-B-O-Y-Z, at gmail.com, or at our Facebook page. We're working on some trophies to send to the winning group. If this goes off well, we want to turn this into an annual event. So if you can all help us spread the word, I'd really appreciate it. And we are all big believers in using our wargaming powers for awesome. So uh, anything that can help raise charity and encourage gaming groups to take part in this and, hey, maybe win a trophy, you should totally do that. So we'll post links to the Facebook page and we'll get that shared around. And, yeah, uh, Food Bank Challenge, this is this is something that should not be hard. And I'm looking at, you know, seeing if we can recruit a couple of our local gaming clubs and uh, get in on the action and see if we can... Uh, you know, raise some food support for because uh, I know in Kansas City, what we've got harvesters and uh, mm-hmm. there are other food. You know, there's any large city should have a should have a food bank or some organization or even just a church. There's a lot of church groups that have, you know, uh, that do charity drives and things like that. So if nothing else, like you might be able to find someone who can who can get you in contact with someone who can accept those. So if you want to take part in the food for the food god challenge, uh, definitely uh, contact the Dangly Boys. See if see what they need. To, uh, to you to do on your end and then you know get the ball rolling and november 1st through november 17th so you've got a couple of months to get everything together to get the you know get the ball rolling on this so definitely definitely help out if you can all right next up is from lance bernardo lance writes hey rob it's your friendly neighborhood guard player again Obviously, great work on the podcast. All of you, keep up the good work. Lots of us look forward to the podcast every two weeks, and it's very enjoyable on uneventful days at work and on long car rides. I was going to include a list review, but I'll skip that this week in order to put forward a few questions and views of my own for discussion. One thing that lots of players seem to be forgetting about 8th edition 40k is that there's a lot we are no longer dealing with. My friends reminisce about the good old days of 40k, and for me, that means spending 45 minutes in the shooting phase with templates and scattering and arguing and keeping track of units running off the board and rallying them and vehicle armor facings and having different armor pen mechanics for vehicles and a damage chart with lucky hits blowing up my Russes in one shot, most vehicles having limited weapon fire after moving because they weren't heavy vehicles, and so on. I have a cheat sheet for 7th edition with every gameplay rule on it, and it is an eight-page nightmare. I do not want to go back to those days if it can be avoided at all. <laughs> My primary idea, however, is about the command point issue. I've been homebrewing Dungeons & Dragons and Pathfinder, as well as modding video games and designing a few games myself for over a decade. And what that experience has taught me is that the best thing you can do when presented with the 
quote, everyone does blank, unquote, is to present other options that are just as appealing. In the context of command points in 40K, this can be done several ways. The way I believe would be most successful and universally liked would be the cost reduction of stratagems. Throughout all of your codex reviews, barring guard, which I'm still holding out for, <laughs> keep waiting. <laughs> we'll see what we can do. Uh, you'll have you have at least glazed over stratagems. Lots of the stratagems discussed make me say, hey, that's pretty cool. And then you move on to the cost and I say, oh, goodness, it costs two or three command points. Some of my favorite stratagems to use, like crush them, cost only one command point, can wreck an enemy squad. Then there are stratagems like fire on my position that give you a chance to do a little damage but cost a whopping three command points. I find that most stratagems, however, fall into the aerial spotter category, which is to say they're nice, but they aren't really worth it. This is especially true when I could use take cover, grenadiers, and fight to the death to improve saves, do massive damage in Overwatch, take reduced morale losses, and all of it would be giving, all I'd be giving up would be a very circumstantial chance to do a few mortal wounds. In fact, my favorite stratagem is overlapping fields of fire, which is extremely powerful when you have three Cadian basilisks pounding high priority targets to their composite atoms with strength nine shots, and it only costs two command points. As a guard player who burns through their command points as quickly, I almost never run out of points, and half the armies in 40k have trouble getting off even four stratagems that aren't just reroll ones. I'm also in favor of more stratagems for all factions to use, but like you mentioned, most factions have access to similar rules worded differently in their own codexes. A final note is that, yeah, I have a lot of command points, but my units are also quite weak. For the cost of a 10-man marine squad, I have like 40 guardsmen. And having four up on every unit can be infuriating sometimes, as Tau players, you surely feel me on that one. Should all armies have the same command point capabilities at all, especially when some armies have such strong units, such as custodes? I personally believe they should, but that is a question that should be brought up. If it were up to me, I would have the price of stratagems reduced across the board instead of just nerfing command points. Instead of printing more money, we should, can just make the money worth something. I think if all armies could drop stratagems like I do, the game would be more fun to play and to watch as well as become more interactive. hope this inspires some fun discussion, and I hope to hear your guard review soon so I can write a letter about that too. Best regards, Lance. We do need to bring someone in for the guard review. We do, and we've had a couple of people... Uh, you know, we, we've had a couple of people offer to do it or even we've had numerous we've even had the idea mm-hmm. of like bringing in a whole lot of people and recording bits and pieces and, and making the platoon guard review. <laughs> we'll, we'll see. We, we've, we've got yeah. some ideas, but uh, and this is actually very similar to I think an idea you brought up, Kevin, was the idea of just repricing comm- stratagems across the board. Yeah. No, and I, and I think that's I think this is one thing that would be helpful because um, it would allow more more armies to use a more variety of stratagems because right now several armies just kind of use a couple stratagems because the ones that are expensive you either use like once or you don't use at all because they're just too expensive this would this would encourage a lot more variety in the stratagems being used to the second point that i that i actually think is very interesting is him talking about the command point capabilities of different armies and i actually completely agree with them that guards since they are a weaker army and have more bodies they probably have should have more command points to be able to do more extra things. The only problem with that, that in my opinion, comes in when you start mixing factions. Because guard can provide a lot of command points, what people are using is they're, use, they're dropping in a guard battalion to get the command points to use for custodes or blood angel strategies. Right. And that's where the imbalance is. It, again, as we talked about, I think, last time, if you could only spend the command points that you generate from guard on guard stratagems, I have zero complaints about that because I really do think at that point it's like, well, yeah, your your guard can use your your command points they generate for guard stratagems. Blood Angels can use their 
uh, command points that they generate for Blood Angel strategies. I think that right there fixes most of the problem. And I have to wonder if that really is the intent that, you know, the idea is that, you know, it was always phrased as this is the reward for like you should be rewarded for building your army under a single faction. And, mm-hmm. you know, if if you do that, then like, yes, you can have a bunch of command points and they're all you're going to spend them on your own stuff. Whereas, yeah, if you had like if you had a list that was like a small guard detachment for five command points and then a like, say, a Blood Angels battalion for another five and then a knight super heavy you know just just Mm -hmm. take like a standard competitive imperialist right now if you had yeah and so you've got like one knight and some a couple of smash captains and some scouts and uh, a guard battalion if suddenly you only instead of having 13 command points to spend if you had suddenly if you just had five for your guard five for your blood angels none for your knights and then i guess three to spend on whatever you want mm-hmm. suddenly you would have to manage those it, it would be more bookkeeping but it would then ref- require you to focus on what your you know like okay so it some, the battery would go away because there'd be no benefit oh absolutely it. Yeah, nobody would, nobody would take the battery anymore, which uh, we've gotten a lot of comments over the last months as we've talked about this because it's been a, an ongoing topic for several episodes where people are like, but it's fluffy to take Imperial Guard with Space Marines and, and mix in those Imperium things. And I agree with that. But if you took away the benefit of the Guard battery, the Guard battery would go away, which means it is only there because it's efficient in game. If you took away the Guard battery benefits you would have much more balanced guard army lists where it's like, oh, this is half guard and half space marines or half guard, half imperial knights or mostly guard and imperial knights rather than this is a 30 mook standing in the background while the smash captain runs up and, and does damage. It would, ju- it, would, it would actually change the game more to what people want it to be, which is much more fluffy and balanced rather than we're taking this 300 point add-on just for the command points. Exactly. I, and I would, I think, I think if you combine that with uh, some of Lance's suggestion, because I, I like the idea, of maybe make all, may, maybe make all stratagems across the board cost one point. That it's just like, mm-hmm. and, and with the limitation of anything that's currently like three command points right now, make once per game. Yeah. Because then it's like, okay, yeah, you still have agents of Vect, and it costs you a command point, but you can do it once. How did you know that was the one I was? That was <laughs> yeah. because that's the that's the one that comes up the most. Absolutely. Or, uh, you know, you, uh, I mean, we already have stratagems that are once per game. Like a lot of the or- like orbital bombardment style stratagems, things like that are once per game. Time of traders got changed to once per game. Exactly. So it, there's, there is precedent for that. And you could still have, like, you could have a couple of pregame stratagems, like the ones that let you place somebody in, uh, like deep strike or like the webway assault where it's like one or three depending on how many units you want to place in it, that one you could leave the same because yeah. it's a it's a pre-game, pre-game stratagem. Uh, same thing with the relic stratagems. You, you could leave those in as they are one or three, but then pretty much just retool everything else that can be used in like during the flow of the game to one. I guess you could leave ones and two because you've got some that are twos for like interrupting combat and automatically passing morale. I think those 
are fine staying where they are. Mm-hmm. But yeah, I think if a lot of if a lot of stratagems maybe were de-escalated, maybe just even just by a point, you know, bring like a lot of the codex ones down from like th- one like three to two and two to one, and then make the the previously three point ones once per game. I think that would that would address a lot of it, and I think also they there could be those armies that can do a lot of can- command point recycling. They need to be tightened down, so maybe it's only on your own command points, like your own yes. your your faction stratagems. So you couldn't even use them for like re rolls and stuff like that because those are the generic ones. When I actually saw that on, um, I think it was reading today on the the competitive forty k Facebook page, somebody posted that they're like, "That's how Tallyman works." is that he only recycles Death Guard stratagem command points. A, a simple fix for the some of the command point, you know, the rerolls and, and recycling is, yeah, the guard one only works for guard command uh, stratagems. And, you know, and I think that would make it, that would also make that a lot better too. Yeah, and, th- and that's another case where the battery, the incentive to take the battery would also go away. Yeah. I would also not cry if recycling based on your opponent using stratagems went away. Yes. Yeah. Mm, I mean, I can still see that one, at least maybe for Guard and maybe for Dark Eldar, because those seem to be the factions that try to steal your plans, so to speak. Or they have to work on a strategic level, whereas, you you know, it's like they're built around countering your particular strategy. Okay, that I could see, but limit it to one or two factions that can do that. And again, Mm -hmm. limit it to one command instead of like a, a lot of those where it's like, I know. I so we don't get letters from guard players. I understand the warlord trait only affects your own use of command points. Sure, and Aquila only affects everybody, but it's only one point. Everything should yeah. be more like Kurov's Aquila, where it's like one point. Yeah, you know, it's like yes. There's no reason for Cabal of the Black Hand to be able to to theoretically get back all three of the command points they spend on uh, agents of Vect. There's no reason yeah. for guard players to get back all the points they spend on a multi-point stratagem. Although, if, again, if you down downgrade the price on a lot of stratagems, one point is fine because that's how much most stratagems are going to cost. So Sure, yeah. But yeah, I, th- I think I, I think Lance is on, it has some good points. And I, yeah, I agree with him that if everything was kind of cycled down and you let some factions be more, more stratagem heavy than others to yeah. counter the fact that although the thing is guard also have some very strong units because they have really good tanks they have really good artillery mm-hmm. so you have to be careful about how much you play the uh the card of oh i have a really weak army well depending on how you build it you might not you can you can overcome right. those even just within your codex all right next right. yeah all right next one is from daniel hamblin dan daniel writes yeah you guys read my letter what a charge thanks of course i have a briefer follow-up for you fine lads so first, come on now, guys. You can't use Mike Brandt's Blood Angels to make your point. He's the king of soup players. His lists are the epitome of meta-runny soup that's everywhere. Using him to make your point is like fake news. D- just my opinion, but I think you should correct that one. Okay. Ahem. <laughs> so I'm going to step in here in the middle of the letter and clarify what I mean by going by- talking about Mike Brandt's list. My only experience with Mike Brandt's list, and I will cl- I-, I will totally take this, is with his list from the LVO, which that's the list that I refer to when I talk about Mike Brandt's Blood Angels list. Now, granted, LVO was back in February, which might as well have been a decade ago because right. of how, because the differences in the big FAQ, 
and all the codexes that have been released since then. Because since then, we've had the change to Deep Strike. We've had the change to how many command points are in a detach provided by a detachment. We had the change. Well, Battle Brothers doesn't really affect his list. We'll talk about that. And uh, we've you know had Knights released since then, Dark Eldar released since then, uh, Custodes released since then. You know, it's it's definitely a different environment now. At least I think Custodes was released since then. Uh, yeah, they were released. No, after that. You know, no, Custodes was released in January, so Custodes may have been legal at the time. But since then, we've had uh, Harlequins, Knights, Necron. Necrons don't really affect much, but uh, and uh, Tau again don't really affect much. So anyway, what was Mike Brandt's list that I was referring to? It's the following: a guard brigade, not a battalion, a brigade. Using uh, that's Katachin using Iron Hand Straken, two company commanders, a platoon commander who's your warlord with Kuros Aquila. So he's got there, he's probably go- using Grand Stratus as well. So he's got the recycling going. Platoon commander and a Ministorm priest. So already we've deviated away from the standard ba- battery. And again, this was before the battery became a thing because battalions weren't worth five, they were only worth three. This was a brigade which was worth nine at the time. Ten infantry squads, all with a mortar-heavy squad attached, three scout sentinels, and three mortar-heavy weapon squads. That's 915 points of guard. And then his Blood Angels Battalion, which is 1,085 points, a sanguinary priest, a librarian, a chaplain, you'll notice there's no smash captain, a unit of eight sanguinary guard, a unit of seven sanguinary guard, a sanguinary ancient, and then three units of five scouts with bolt pistol and combat knife. And I look at that, I'm like... Now, that is what I think of when I think when somebody says, yeah, it's fluffy to have a guard back, you know, backed up by Space Marines or Space Marines backed mm-hmm. up by guard. I look at this and I'm like, it's a guard brigade and some heavy hitters for, you know, for Blood Angels. And this is after the Codex was released. So, no, so he's not running Death Company. He's not using any of the he's not using any of those uh, shenanigans. I mean, the only thing is like his characters all have jump packs. OK, fine. There, but he hasn't, he does not, hasn't used the angel's wing. So there's, you know, he's not using any of the standard space marine slam, slam Gwinius, you know, the blood angel slam Gwinius tricks. This is, I look at this and I'm like, this is a fluffy blood angels and guard list. I don't even consider this soup. And again, I don't like the fact that people refer, when they talk about soup, now they're meaning anything that contains more than one faction. I don't think right. that, I don't think that should be considered a soup list. I think a soup list should be, Real, was really the original definition was I have an Imperium detachment and I've thrown in everything into that one detachment. This is this is a you know two allied detachments working together. So I don't consider this a soup list. Now whatever he's run since then, sure maybe, but this is the list I refer to. So if my point of reference is maybe a little outdated, which again raises the point that we're effectively playing eight point five right now. Because, yes. You know, with all the with all the changes, it's it feels the addition has changed that much just in a few months. So, but anyway, that is why I refer to Mike Brandt's Blood Angels list because this is what I'm referring to as his LVO 2018 list. All right, continuing on with the letter. Next, I think there might be some blurring of the line between viable, equally viable, competitive, and equally competitive. I should go back and listen, but I'm pretty sure in the previous episode, the unpopular opinion was about being viable regarding assault based armies. I obviously, 
I obviously believe all those choices should have a yes next to assault armies. That said, I never expected assault to be equally as easy, nor do I wish it to be. But going back to Eric's letters and bad feels, one of the arguments was that Alpha Strike Assault was an easy win, when in fact it's not, while shooting is always easy. As for GW's intent on intent or design philosophy, I think they're in a tough spot. Do they balance the game for beginners or by the competitive yardstick? Because let's be honest, assault units in your face may have a visceral, a visceral impact, especially to a newbie, and may cause bad feels. But at no point in 8th edition have assault-based armies been dominating the competitive scene. We've seen a few lists, and more than a few units do well here and there, but shooting has dominated, really dominated from day one, even with nids. So assault getting nerfed because it is unfriendly to inexperienced players shouldn't be a thing once they started adopting the competitive thing. It can't be both ways. Finally, I think you guys are dead on about command points. They are the most broken part of 40k right now. I know my army relies or depends so heavily on them, whereas some armies don't need them at all, or at least as often. So limiting them across the board, per turn, or game, would hurt certain armies much more than others, as would awarding equal CP across each faction. It doesn't help that the stratagems are not remotely balanced either. This is a basically a repeat of the last letter. <laughs> I don't have the solution, but I just wish that soup wasn't always the best answer. In the core rules, there's a stratagem to cut in during the fight phase. There should have always been a stratagem to cut in during the shooting phase, but I think GW massively overvalued the impact of assault in this game. As it is, all the assault-based stratagems cost more than the equivalent shooting-based stratagems, and then the rest of the dead horse we already beat. Ha <laughs> ha. Again, thanks again. Loving the show. Daniel Hamblin. So one thing that, uh, that Dan just mentioned there that actually takes me back to a point out of Lance's previous question. I agree with them being command points being the most broken part of the game. because, And I think they stand out as the most broken part of the game because, to Lance's point, all of the other, like, tedious broken shit has been taken out of 8th edition. Yes. And I definitely want to make sure that we hit on that point because armor facings, templates, uh, you know, scatter dice, all of that crap is out of the game. And it does streamline the game, which makes it more, like, stand out that command points are so like clumsy and poorly implemented in the game. Yeah. And, uh, and that is exactly why, as we've brought up before that index 40 K and codex 40 K feel so different yeah. and why index 40 K seemed to work in codex 40 K early codex 40 K. Yes. Later codex 40 K. Not so much. Yeah. I mean, the game works and the games are fun, but yeah, it's, and it's also stands out because it is the most new element. I think yes. as well. It's like everything else is a variation on what has been done before. Whereas command points and stratagems were a completely new element that were introduced in eighth edition and not even, and only barely touched upon when the edition launched. So yeah, it's been interesting to see how that's been rolled out and supported. And it's probably the part it, on the one hand, it is the part that has needed the most tuning. And I think we see that with the changes that they've made and Fortunately, because it is its own separate system, it's the one you can play with the most without affecting the rest of the game as heavily. Yeah. Because let's be honest, you could take the stratagem and command point system out of this game entirely and 8th edition would still play well. Well, then it's just you're playing at that point. You're not playing. Uh, you're just playing narrative 40K. Yeah. Or, you know, you're just playing. You're literally playing one of the other book versions of 40K. You're playing open at that point. Open. Thank you. That's yeah. That was what I was that was the word I was looking for. <laughs> and so, yeah, I mean, it, it's it's the trickiest part, 
to to build around. And we've kind of talked that through already. Now, I do. I also like what Daniel brought up about you know how does GW balance the game? Do they balance it for newcomers or do they balance it for competitive players? And it's it's a similar issue to do you. You know, to previous editions where it's like, do you balance this around narrative play or do you balance this around competitive play? And that was always one of the issues where like, these rules are really cool for narrative, but they're a nightmare for competitive play. And he does bring up the point that once they decided to officially enter the competitive play space and, and support that as a formal way to play, that there's kind of a, an obligation to balance the game for that as much as possible. I still don't know if I, if I, buy into the argument and I, I don't think daniel necessarily plays into that as well i'm just kind of just as talking in general about the idea of uh this or that is bad feels man like i don't think you should balance your game on whether or not a strategy is effective if it's always effective over everything else yes take a look at that but balancing something like dude i lost my unit in assault well that sucks well that's always kind of been you know that's always been a risk. That's, that's, you know, you could also lose your unit to a lot of shooting. You could lose a guy to a psychic power. This has happened. This happens all the time. So I, I don't think saying, oh man, assault feels, you know, it feels bad to lose a unit in assault. Eh, I, I don't really buy that argument, but, and I also agree with him that assault was never meant to be easy. Shooting is always easier. And I think that right there could be addressed by maybe fixing some of the cover rules for for this edition. Yes. Maybe actually putting the kill team style cover rules in the pl- in play so that having units obscured would actually give them cover rather than having to be fully in a terrain piece. Just just spitballing there, but that that right there would help tone down the power of shooting if there were more ways to mitigate it. Because right now there aren't. Yeah, agreed. Yeah. Like I said, other than the, the defense of why I'm, I'm using Mike, Mike Brandt's Blood Angels list from LVO 2018 is kind of a, a yardstick to go by. And again, that list would not work quite. I mean, that list would have a ton more command points now because it would have 12 for the brigade and five for the battalion. So it'd be rocking 20 command points. Just yeah. saying. But it also probably wouldn't be as effective because of the change to deep strike because he'd have to, he'd have to hold his sanguinary guard. Well, he'd have to hold a sanguinary guard in until second turn. But yeah. the other thing is, he's got over a hundred guys on the board without them. Yeah, I mean, I would be interested to see what that list would do in the, under the current game right now. It's obviously not as effective as it once was, but I still think it could be. Uh, I still think it could be a good one because it could be kind of a counter to counterpunch to what's what everyone's doing right now. Right, um, and I think that there's definitely benefits in that. Mm-hmm. So yeah, I'd, I'd be curious. Now I'm, I imagine he has tested it under this new edition, and that's probably why he may not be playing that version right now. Right. But yeah, yeah. I'd, I'd, but yeah, I'd be curious to like play through that and see like what does this actually do in this edition? Does it does it work with this? Because like I said, it would have a ton of command points, and if we're saying that you can send, if we're saying that you can spend points on um relics even if you don't get your free one if you can just always like the blood angels could always mm-hmm. spend some of the command points on blood angel relics throw an angel's wing onto somebody and go nuts you know why not all right moving on next one is from Stuart worthington Stuart writes greetings preferred enemies i've been a listener since getting super hyped about the slow reveal of eighth edition and i've loved the pods that you've been casting i'd just like to add my two cents on the ongoing discussion of assault versus shooting this is the topic that will never die and i blame myself for bringing it up by the way (laughs) 
I blame you too. <laughs> well, I'd like to add my two cents on the uh, to the ongoing discussion of assault versus shooting, which has been some very interesting discussion so far. Some of the points made in the last episode really mirrored the way that I feel about assault. I've always been happy with the idea that shooting is more reliable and safer as you just point and shoot from further away without immediate retaliation on your turn. Assault is riskier, requires more movement to pull off, and then the enemy gets to hit you right back in your own turn. The idea in my mind has always been that this was fine because assault is riskier but has a higher reward. Your discussion on this last episode was really good, especially comparing it to using different paths to victory in board games when one path might be a more advanced strategy requiring more effort but equally viable. The issues carrying through from earlier editions into 8th do seem to be that assault is either still too risky or still doesn't even doesn't have a high enough reward. I'm personally happy with most of the risk side, and if there's going to be a change, then I'd want it to be on upping the reward end of the equation, which I totally agree with. I think that's... Yeah. That's where that's where I think Assault has fallen down in this edition, because it used to be high-risk, high-reward in previous editions. Uh, some of the ways this has been tackled by GW has been through powerful relics, stratagems, warlord traits, psychic powers, etc., that help Assault armies to reach their target. The problem here is that they are great, but they can only be used on one or two units simultaneously, so you can't have your entire army getting Assault buffed. I feel that this contributes to more soup armies where players build a shooting list and then ally in a Captain Smash or Bloodletter Bomb as their single assault element. Alternatively, there's the Asriani Inari shooting list that slingshots a single Shining Spear unit with their psychic powers. Having a single buffed up assault element seems to be easy enough, but having a pure assault army like Slanesh or Corn Demons just isn't cutting the mustard in top tier 40k. I agree that there's a bit of an attack deficit since we lost the plus one attack for charging, and that contributes a bit to the problem. This is part of the current strength of massive tar pit units that simply have too many wounds to churn through in the numbers, number of turns in the game. Morale was theoretically supposed to help this sort out, so you didn't need as many attacks because each one would be more devastating, but it doesn't seem to be a strong enough effect in most cases. I don't play Sigmar, but maybe those morale you'll, but maybe those, but maybe these morale rules are enough there because they aren't as good as many armor saves and removing enough models to make morale relevant is more common. I do have a proposition to make the morale phase more critical and also incentivize assault. Add the following wording to the morale phase rules. Quote, to take a morale test, roll a die and add the number of models from the unit that have been slain this turn. Morale, or models slain in the fight phase this turn count as two models slain for the morale test. The change is possibly a bit heavy-handed and could use could cause some consequences I haven't foreseen, but something like this would definitely make morale very relevant to assaults. It also seems fluffy that assaults are more bloody and have a greater impact on morale. If you're worried that this also makes assaults riskier for the charger, it could be further redefined as, or could be further refined as, quote, if the unit did not charge in the charge phase this turn, model slain in the fight phase this turn count as two models for the morale test. I'm curious for your take on this or a similar change to morale to get us some way back to being able to wipe out a unit you beat in assault. I think the biggest problem here is that it still seems to be just too many armies with big blobs that have ways of ignoring morale as a factor. Orcs and Nids would be almost completely immune to changes brought about through the, through the morale phase. I don't mind too much like things like Eandon as you're normally giving up another cool ability for their morale resistance, and these rules tend to appear on more elite armies anyway. Your discussion on falling back was also great, and I really like the idea of getting some kind of D&D-style attack of opportunity on units that fall back from you, just to add a greater element of risk or penalty. I remember back when 8th was first being previewed, and falling back was mentioned for the first time. I've even found the article at the article uh, and pasted a clip below. Under the dis disadvantages of falling back, it states that, quote, enemies will be able to shoot at you, unquote. Myself and my group all took this to mean that if you fell back from an enemy unit, they would immediately get the opportunity to shoot at you as you ran away. So this kind of idea of getting hurt by falling back has always been in my mind for 8th edition. Thanks for your time and keep up the good work. Stuart from the UK. 
P.S. While I'm fine with assault being raised up a bit, I think it's perfectly valid to suggest that building a pure assault army is running with a deliberate disadvantage and shouldn't need to be as good as a more combined arms approach. I will totally agree with the P.S., especially as someone who runs yeah. Slanesh and has no shooting. <laughs> <laughs> I, I know I'm running at a disadvantage, and I accept that. And, you know, I, I, I like his mechanic. I, I'm curious to see how well it would play out, but I, I like, I always like it when somebody actually suggests a fix rather than just to, you know, just complain about it. So it, and I think something like that where assault morale or, you know, maybe it's like it becomes harder. You have to be able to keep track of it, but either something like that where if you didn't charge this turn, morale, you know, losses count at losses from the fight phase count as two, which is harder to track, or you subtract one for your leadership for every charging model within an inch of your, of the unit. Mm-hmm. See, <sighs> but then that, hor- that kind of edges in on the space of armies like night Lords and other things mm-hmm. that have a built in right. leadership penalty. Yeah. Of those, I just liked the ones that died in the fight phase count as two, as opposed to one. But yeah, on the, that's kind of the cleanest way, I think. But on the whole, I don't know that any of it will fix it because, as we've noted, I hate saying it this way, but morale is kind of like the fear from the previous editions, where so many people have ways to ignore morale things. Even with I see leadership penalties coming into that, the morale phase is very—it's not used often, and I mean, when it affects you, it hurts, but it doesn't come up frequently enough. I think. Yeah, there, and there's enough ways to like. One thing people have noticed is that you're better off building a small small units yes. rather than large units, because by the time a small unit would be affected by morale, they're dead anyway. Right. Exactly. Whereas a large unit is more likely to take morale losses because they'll survive long enough to suddenly lose extra models for no reason. Yeah, and I mean, I, I feel that with this Slanesh, but then I could if I trim down my units, then I'm kind of like I'm running Eldar, and I have lots of small units and hey, I don't have to worry about morale because once my unit's small enough, it's going to be dead already anyway. Yep. So I I really think morale also probably needs to be looked at because right now it's a penalty for blob units. And then, like they mentioned, orcs, where we're assuming, will have ways around it. Well, they have Nids. mob rule. Yeah, Nids have ways around it. But those armies should. I have, like, Nids should not care. Like, as long as there's somebody with synapse nearby... Yeah, they should not care how many models. Like you throw a unit yeah. of thirty like hormigons at somebody, you kill fifteen of them. The other fifteen aren't going to care. They should automatically yeah. pass morale. Well, then that kind of proves my point. The the ones that have the big blob unit that morale will actually affect have ways around it. So morale in itself is not working as intended. Mm, but morale is where I think you would have to put in a change like this to make assault more effective. Well, yeah, I agree with the assault. I'm just saying in general, morale in general, is not where I, it needs to be. I, I've managed. I can. I've managed to, depending on the on the army, like uh, guard again, like guard assault. You know, the the guard uh, CP battery. Those units tend to be pretty easy to clear off because if you kill half of like because you have to take them in units of ten because they're guardsmen, and if you kill five of them, there's a good chance th- two or three are going to run off if they if they roll badly on the uh, on the morale test. So it does still have an effect, but we do see a lot of focus on single model units. Like knights are pretty much immune to morale because they're all single model units for the most part. You know, even uh, like. Armagers, once you play them, then they split off into their own units and they're all mm-hmm. pretty much immune to leadership. Um, and it's either you, MSU, where, like I said, by the time leadership would affect you, you're dead anyway. It, and uh, there was actually an article on Bella Lessels this week about how the fact that horde armies 
haven't won a lot of, they don't win a lot of tournaments. They're hard to play because of time constraints. And yeah, they can tar pit things and either like they always pass morale or there's so many bodies it just takes a while to chew through them. But they, because they're hard to play and they don't give you a lot of the damage effectiveness that you need, they're not, it's not like they're cleaning up. So they're, they're actually at a, if anything, they're slightly weakly balanced, but. Uh, that, that's kind of goes to the point too. Yeah. They, they're at so many disadvantages already. Yeah. They, they used like early on in the edition, they, people looked at them as like the go-to thing because oh, yeah. yeah, it's like cheap bodies that I can just flood the field and overwhelm you with attacks, but that's not how the game is working out right now. So, and most, most armies don't have ways to replenish them. And even the ones that do like death guard, they now can't replenish them past their starting point, which was like one of the mm-hmm. big gimmicks, like the death blossom thing where it's like, I'm going to have a few guys die and then boom, suddenly I have a whole bunch of free box walkers, but that doesn't happen. That doesn't work anymore. But yeah, no, I totally agree with them that, that an army generally shouldn't be all assault. You are going to put yourself at a disadvantage, but I also agree that assault needs the risk. The risk is there, but the reward is gone, I think. And even something as simple as like bring back the plus one attack for charging. I'd be fine with too. I kind of, I kind of, I mean, yes, you go first and that's kind of been the, as accepted as the, the, the reward for charging first. But I really do think you need that extra, you need the extra attack because you, it's not just a matter of going first. It's a matter of being able to do enough wounds to maybe wipe a unit or to, yeah, or to cripple it to the point where it can't effectively fight back anymore. And then you'll clean it up on your opponent's turn, if nothing else. And also falling back needs – I'm all for the idea of falling back, triggering – like you fall back and you suffer D3 or D6 mortal wounds or something like you – or you know just some way to make falling back risky. Like on, I, I still like the idea if you fall back, everyone gets a f- one attack per model from the unit you're falling back from. Mm-hmm. But yeah, something like that where falling back should just not be an automatic I pull back and then – like except for maybe vehicles, vehicles I can see, but even then you should have big things being able to hurt vehicles. Yeah. On. I mean, I, I right. still, in my mind, view that as reverse Overwatch is we're going to hit you on the way out, even if it's only on sixes. At least we feel like we get an opportunity to say, "Hey, you're leaving. We're going to hit you once." Right. Yeah. And then tie that in with the like the witch shardnet impaler ability of I get to do that, and then I roll to see if you even get away. Yeah, mm-hmm. uh, that would make them even more deadly. Right, because it's like you're going to take some you're probably going to take some wounds when you fall back and then oh look you you actually didn't fall back. So, yeah, I, I think that would that would be you, you would be able to slot that in pretty easily with existing rules and it would give assaulters like once they get in, it's going to be messier to dis- to to detangle yourself from them, which is how it should be. Right. I mean, you might only have one or two hits land because you're wounding on sixes, but hey, that's what it you had coming into the assault when you were getting overwatched. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so yeah, no, the, they're all these are all good ideas, and I, and hopefully, hopefully, somebody's listening to some of these discussions and maybe thinking, hey, and we're still waiting on we we don't know what the second big FAQ is going to look like. So who knows? Maybe some of this stuff's going to get addressed with new beta rules because yep. I imagine the beta rules from big FAQ one will be finalized. And then we'll find out what, you know, what, what other new ch- big changes are coming. Cause I think after, I think command points and assault are the two things that definitely seem to have the, the most need for tweaking at this point. All right. Next up, we've got some kill team questions. First one is from, what? yeah, that's kind of cool. This is, we're, we're an un, 
untrod territory at this point. Kyle Lomare writes, Hello all, I'm looking for some clarification about how two rules interact. On page 32 of the Kill Team rulebook, in the damage characteristics section, it states about rolling multiple dice for an injury roll and taking the highest. How would that interact with the Necron tactic primary animation protocols stating a rule, or stating roll an extra dice and pick the lowest? Do the army sections act as a codex and trump the rulebook? Thanks in advance, Kyle. So, uh, page 32 of the main rulebook, just so that we're all on the same page here, literally. Okay, so this is under damage characteristic. If a model loses its last wound to an attack that has a damage characteristic of more than one, the player whose model made the attack roll rolls a number of dice equal to that characteristic when making the injury roll rather than just one, and applies the highest result after modifiers. So the attack has a damage characteristic that is roll that is a random value. Use the value rolled when inflicting damage. For example, if a model with three wounds remaining fails its saving throw against a weapon with a damage characteristic of three, it will be reduced to zero wounds. And that player controlling the mo- the attacking model will roll three dice for the injury roll, applying the highest result. And then if a model loses its last wound while there's still their attacks or mortal wounds still allocated to it, these are not resolved. They just go away. So that's where it says you roll the it's only when doing multiple damage. So now the Necron tactic, which is prime reanimation protocols. And this is on page 153. Necron's tactic. Use this tactic when an injury roll is made for a model from your kill team. Roll an additional dice and apply the lowest result. So his question is, do the tactics beat, do they override the existing rules? And I have not found any, I mean, in general, the tactics do override. I mean, in most rules, you know, it's going to be, you. these are the rules of the game. Specific units and specific tactics can override that. Although they didn't actually, I looked, they didn't actually put a specific rule about that in the game. Well, okay, so what it almost sounds to me is like whenever you're making a save for a Necron, you basically roll two dice, take the lowest. Well, so or it's for that, specifically for injury rolls. It's a it's, or for injury rolls. Yeah. So, for example, if you get hit with three uh, a three wound weapon and you it reduce you to zero, you make three wound rolls and pick the highest. It sounds to me like you would basically roll two dice, two dice, two dice, and then take disregarding taking the lower number on each dice roll and then taking the highest of those three. Well, I th- or I, the way I would roll it is you would – primary animation protocols would basically in, – in the way I th- would think it would be worded is instead of rolling four, three dice and taking the highest result, you would now roll four dice and take the lowest result. It would mm-hmm. actually – because nor mm-hmm. – yeah, it would, it, would override, it would override the existing rules, I think. I'm wondering if they've re- – it's possible well, – it- Okay, if we consider the fact that you're talking about this, the injury roll, yes, for a multiple damage characteristic weapon mm-hmm. is just three dice. Like in total, this is a thing called you're not making three injury rolls, you're making an injury roll, and it consists of three dice, right? So okay. maybe using the stratagem just replaces your injury roll with what's on the stratagem so you just roll two dice and take the well, no. well you're still rolling the injury dice with the injury roll with three dice and the tactic specifically says roll an additional die so it would mm. add a fourth die i believe the question is would you still take the highest or would you take the lowest because the stratagem oh, says right. you take the lowest i would say that i would go with the stratagem because the stratagem is you're paying the cost for it and it's kind of overriding a base rule, which is what most stratagems end up doing. Right. I was just hoping to find wording in the book for 
that. Yeah, whether it overrides that. Um, unfortunately, there is not. And I'm trying to see if they have an FAQ for Kill Team yet. I don't believe they do. No, I don't think there's a, a Kill Team FAQ yet. They're probably working one on one as we speak. So I'm going to say the way I would rule it would be the it's an additional roll and it changes it from highest to lowest. Because it does also cost two command points. It's an yeah, expensive yeah. tactic. I can buy in on that one. Because it does it you know, you, the additional die is is obvious. That is that would be included, and then it would just ch- say you ex- you take the lowest result. So yeah, I that's that is how I would probably rule that one. Now again, they may release an FAQ soon, which will completely counteract that. But that's how that's how the logic seems to play. And I would say, as in most games, you have the core rules. Any abilities on units and tactics can override the core rules. That is pretty standard. So I would consider it to be like the way a codex can override, you know, codex. Codex beats rulebook. And I, I would say in this case, faction rules and faction abilities and faction tactics and unit uh, such override the, ex- the core underlying rules. That, that should always, that should always be ge- in the general rule. It's just a shame they didn't actually put that in the rulebook so that everyone was aware of it. I'm uh, moving on from Drew Davenport, uh, l- another kill team. Uh, letter. Uh, hey, preferred enemies. I'm a long time under discussion listener and a new preferred enemies listener as I only got into the hobby a couple of months ago. I have a couple of questions and a list review for Kill Team and then I need an opinion on choosing a Horde army in 40k. Later on that. First with Kill Team, I have a list of Space Marines containing a Reaver Sergeant, two Reavers, all three with Grapnels and Grav Shoots, and three basic Intercessors. My question is are the Grav Shoots worth it in Kill Team? Grav Shoot reads, a model with a Grav Shoot never suffers falling damage and never falls on another model. If it would, instead place this model as close as possible to the point where it would have landed. This can bring it within one inch of an enemy model. Does this mean that a Reaver is able to do a jump-down move into melee without charging as long as it's a death-from-above situation? Would the Grapnel negate this action, and is it better to take Grav Shoot off the Reavers and make the Intercessors two gunners with grenade launchers and a sergeant for the higher leadership around them? Second, about main 40k, I want to eventually get a more Horde-type army, but I can't decide on which. I already run a shooty Ultramarines, hybrid Space Wolves, working on Knights, but I want a Horde army to have some variety in playstyle and feel. As cool as Imperial Guard is, I already run enough Imperium, so my choices are either Orcs, which I love the look and silliness of, Tyranids bring me back to my StarCraft playing days with Zerg, or Corn Chaos Demons just have so many demons but also open up the possibility of trying out Age of Sigmar. By the time I actually get to them, I will probably keep flip-flopping back and forth for ages, and I want to hear more experienced and professional opinions. Ah, professional opinions. (laughs) (laughs) Drew, you're cute. (laughs) Keep up the good work, Drew. Um, So first off on the Kill Team stuff, we'll we'll get to the the 40K bit in a minute. So yes, that does mean you can basically fall off of terrain and into somebody's in, into assault with someone, although because you did not charge them, they could still fall back that turn. Because the rule is you can't fall back if you were charged. Yeah. But since you didn't charge them, they could just step away from you without penalty. And because of the fact that movement is well, movements every all of one side goes, and then all of the other side goes. If, yeah. If you basically move down in front of someone, they could just step away before you could assault them. Yeah. You know, the the grab shoots there for falling damage, which is more of an advanced rule. But unfortunately, you don't need the grav shoot for the grapnel launcher, even though logically you would, because in the rules it says the grapnel launcher is what lets you ignore vertical, heights. yeah, 
up and down, it says. So. Mm-hmm. And that's any time you move, right? Correct. So you basically can still charge at, consider just the horizontal movement for charging, if you're actually going to charge someone. And then falling really only matters if you're within an inch of the edge of a terrain and you get hit by an attack. Otherwise, you just have, it's, or you can jump down. This, you know, basically lets you, you know, you can jump down off terrain. So basically, this just allows you, you already ignore the height. So the grab shoots are there just in case you get knocked off of a piece of terrain. I don't think it's really going to allow you to replace charging. Would I replace Reavers with more intercessors, though? Reavers have, ter- the Terror Troops ability is really nice because the minus one leadership, just within three inches of any reaver is going to help you break your opponent's army. It's going to help them fail nerve tests. So that is always useful to have the intercessor sergeant. I I mean, I really, I don't know how much I would worry about having an intercessor sergeant. Let's see. The auxiliary grenade launcher is just a piece of war gear that, uh, include, increases the range of any grenade weapons you have, which you have frag grenades and crack grenades. So the thing about that is, it increases the it does increase the range of them, which is going to mean they'll, they'll be uh, you'll still be at minus one to hit from more than fifteen inches away. But that's better than being at minus one to hit from more than four inches away, or more than three inches away, which is nice. Would would I say the grav shoots are the grav shoots are worth it? Mm, not really, but it's a point per model, so it's not a you know it's not a huge hit. But dropping those lets him have enough points to do the other upgrades he were well the auxiliary grenade launcher is a free upgrade it's a a zero point so he's basically the the intercessor gunner is worth a point is cost the same as a reaver basically so the question is would you run as just pure pure intercessors or would you do reavers and intercessors i kind of like having the reavers because they're a better close combat option and i will admit at least depending on the train types you use having the grapnel launcher people in there is great for maneuvering around. Right. And also, as you mentioned, Rob, the um, minus to leadership is helpful. Yes. So I think having having the combo there, and you still have the bolt carbine, which is still a 24-inch assault two weapon. So, yeah, a reaver with the grapnel launcher and grab shoots 18 points apiece, but I still I think I still like them. I, I think having, having two or three of those to move forward and then having a couple of intercessors in the back... But you probably don't need the grav shoots. You probably don't need the grav shoots. Uh, you you can you are probably fine having grapnel launchers, and that's it. You know, it depends on like how often are you going to hang out on the edge of a piece of tall terrain and possibly uh, get hit and fall. It's it's possible, especially if you're you're up close to somebody mm-hmm. and they're almost on the edge. That leaves you the only spot you can move to the edge. Yeah. So it's, it's do you do you want the extra bit of insurance that you never take damage and you could end up falling into an assault with somebody? Is is that worth uh, is that worth the couple of points per model that that's going to put you over an intercessor gunner? I would play. I would try both of them out and see see how it plays out, and you know just go to taste. Now, as far as the second question, picking a horde army uh, from orcs, tyranid, or corn uh, chaos demons, I would hold off on your decision until at least October, so you can see what orcs are going to mm-hmm. be bringing to the table. Yeah. Uh, other than that. I would really say all of those have uh, viable. All of those are viable choices. If you're looking to maybe have an army that can double for Age of Sigmar, Corn Demons would be totally fine. And actually, we'll be talking about Corn Demons in a little bit. But uh, I mean, you're the orc and Nid player, <laughs> Richard. So like, <laughs> I I'm, mean, yeah, with with the Nid Codex, uh, like you're 
looking at lots of, you know, little guys. I It always comes down to me to, when picking an army, i just going to say go with the ones that you like the models the best for is still always been, like, my number one answer. Right. But, like, as far as, like, feel, you can, with Nids, you can do, like, Horde shooting or Horde close combat. Like, you have that kind of flexibility there and do have a lot of options for supporting it with some bigger, cool-looking models. The Orcs, you're going to have, you know, mainly just close combat as your option uh, also with the the corn demon kin like close combat's pretty much just your option there for yeah. those two armies mm-hmm. i mean orcs will have some supplementary shooting that can do a little bit and then you have like some options for you know vehicles that and bigger things that can support there so, yeah i mean as far as like Horde armies, they still do play quite differently. I, I, I'm a fan of both of them, but orcs are still probably my favorite because they are just goofy and and fun. Yeah, they no, they yeah. If you, if you're looking for goofy and fun, but also still being kind of effective, and like I said, we, we'll see what what they buffs they get in uh, October. Yeah, but yeah, dwar- orcs are not a bad one to go with. But yeah, it's, I think you're absolutely right. Which ones, which the model, which ones have models that uh, appeal to you more? And I would probably, uh, yeah, my feeling would be maybe stay away from demons just because you may want a couple of different varieties of horde army. Yeah. Or you may want to say like I have this army, but I want to try a couple of different builds for it. Yeah. So and both both orcs and and tyranids do give you some variety in in options for builds like orcs are not as good as shooting but they can have lots of shooting yeah so So yeah anyway uh drew yeah just i yeah i'd say look at orcs or nids but don't look at orcs until until october so wait a month or so then make your decision yeah but yeah either either of those would probably be good and then yeah corn demon's the only one i'd be like "Eh, maybe not but hey i mean the Age of Sigmar option is, is a viable is, reason. Is, is, it, is an advantage for that army as well, but I mean, mm-hmm. that depends on how much you want to get into that, too. Yeah. And also, what you build for Age of Sigmar may not be what you build for 40k as well. That, that is true. Yeah. So, yeah, you might be able to make the army do double duty, but you might end up building two completely different builds for it. So, just be aware of that. Next up, a letter from Tim DeFreitas, and Tim writes... Hi, everyone at Preferred Enemies. Thanks for all the podcasts. I like the structure and content of all your shows, and it makes for a much more enjoyable commute to work. Thank you, Tim. I recently played at a 40k tournament in Australia, and it reminded me of the issue at the LVO. I understand that being competitive can be fun, and different people get different things from the hobby. However, speaking with my friends who attended the event, and through my experience, there was a lot of very unsporting behavior. Things like re-rolling dice that shouldn't be on purpose, and forgetting core rules to take advantage, to outright yelling at your opponent. A 40-year-old man behind me even yelled at a teenager, angrily demanding the TO to come over. 40-year-old guy didn't know the basic rules and argued with the TO. This sort of behavior seems to be the norm at tournaments, which has definitely turned me off that scene. Regards, Tim. All right, so I granted this is all going to be... this is all going to be anecdotal, but I can tell you that none of that reflects my experience at tournaments. There will be the occasional case of that guy. That guy is a yeah. factor in 
in 40k in, in any kind of gaming tournament whether it's 40k magic you know esports yeah. well esports not so much i guess you can you can bitch at your opponent over it, chat there, but, there can still be that guy yeah. in esports yeah it, it's a little different but there's still that guy yeah but um yeah i i can tell you for the most part my experiences at tournaments have been nothing but positive uh i and as and especially with the newer edition i find less and less of the people calling you know like yelling for a judge to come over it does occasionally happen there are people who get wrapped up in it there are people who get aggressive there are or you get the people who are passive aggressive and start the match being like oh i'm not going to win anything and then they turn into jerks if things go their way or the the opposite of the person who starts the game like really pumped and sure they're going to win and then if something f- flips and they start falling behind they get just really difficult to deal with it does happen from time to time but that's that is the nature of tournaments and people get occasionally some people get wrapped up in the competitive mindset I can say almost all of my games at tournaments have been positive and friendly. And I don't mean just like, well, the LVO friendly. I mean, like, I I can count on one hand probably the number of bad games I've had at tournaments. Most people who go to tournaments, at least in my experience, have been pretty cool to talk to. Uh, they've been good games. And, like, uh, the cu- occasional times that I've called a judge over have just been because, like, hey, we've got a, an actual rules question that is, like, a weird interaction that we're not sure on. Uh, but for the most part, yeah, everyone's been cool. I enjoy going... While I personally have been getting a little burnt out on competitive play, it really hasn't been because of the player base. And, like, I'm looking forward to going to Iron Halo. And even though Iron Halo is going to be a, a GT, it's going to be a competitive event, I look forward to going because I always have a good time at Iron Halo. So... I wouldn't go back if I didn't enjoy it. You know, it's like as much as Jason may like me to come and help, you know, help him out his vent. I go because I enjoy, you know, the first year we went because we were invited. After that, we've gone because we had a Dennis and I had fun at the first one and we've continued to have fun every time we've gone. So yeah, take that for what you will. That's, that's my anecdotal story. I know Dennis, you've, and Kevin and yeah, you guys and Richard, you haven't really played in that many like big tournaments, but no, not but you've really. played in like small local tournaments, yeah. So I mean, in your experiences, has Tim's experience been kind of an outlier? I mean, for me, it definitely seems like it has been. I've been lucky, unlucky enough to play like a cup to make it towards like the top of a couple of different events, and even at that level, like the games are more serious. But I don't see that the games are like that. The opponents are more, you know, jackasses or act in certain ways, like. I, I still, you know, I still have had the experience of, for the most part, all of the games have been fun. All of the games have been, you know, respectful and friendly. I've gotten my ass kicked, but that doesn't mean that, you know, the game wasn't a fun time, uh, or the, you know, the opponents weren't fun or weren't, you know, weren't willing to explain things, talk to me about it. So I, I don't know. It's that has not been my experience, but I do know I've heard the horror stories of other people that have had that experience. Yeah, I mean, like I said, the, the that guy is definitely out there. I mean, yeah. And also, let's admit, an event like LVO where it's a very first off, it's a very large event, and it's a there's a lot riding on LVO. You know, the person who wins LVO, you know, takes home a big prize. That can have that can have an effect on somebody's play style or mentality 
that they wouldn't necessarily have at a smaller local tournament. Yeah. And especially we, we've talked, you know, we've talked privately about like, do we want to continue doing cash prizes for tournaments? Because that may have an effect on how people are, are approaching it. You know, the, the person who's hoping to bring home a couple of thousand dollars or a few hundred dollars, depending on the scale of mm-hmm. the event, suddenly you add money to the equation and that can really warp somebody's thinking, especially if they're already that kind of person that is going to take this stuff really personally. But I'd say for the most part, like the competitive players that we've met, and we're talking like high-end competitive players like Matt Root, Trent Northington, guys like that, they've all been really chill, fun guys to like hang out with and talk to. Yeah. And yes, when they're in game, they're kind of, it's like they put on their game face, but outside of the game, they're totally cool. And I don't think, I think other than one particular match, which I won't talk about too much, but like at our first Midwest Conquest, (laughs) which had some backstory to it anyway, I, I like none of those top players we've had any issue with. So I, I think, you know, it's, you may have had it, you know, you may have friends who have had the bad experience or they've been next to the table where somebody just could not handle it properly. And that happens, but that is not every tournament. That is not every tournament game. So don't necessarily let that sour you from the idea of playing competitively. If this playing competitively is something you want to do that my experience has been the vast majority of players are pretty cool about it. So, you know, don't let that scare you away necessarily. And I think competitive because of some of the things that have happened with like LVO and ATC and, you know, people playing lists that it turns out aren't legal or things like that. I think it's gotten kind of a bad rap recently because of some high end stuff. But again, I don't consider that to be typical of most competitive play. Yeah, I really don't think it has been. All right. Next up from Brandon John Summerlin. Brandon writes. What do you all think of kit bashing your 40k models with third party bits that GW and Forge World doesn't provide? I.e. putting angel wings from a third party model maker on a 40k Captain Slimgunius model. GW still got their money, but you just added a bit more spice. Absolutely do it. Oh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> so, I, I know that I've had quite a few like little head swaps for orcs and like cool stuff cool yeah. like lots of vendors make really cool bits that oh yeah you can well, i mean like slap on like cromlex there and like yeah yeah there's a lot of makers that like cromlex and puppet war victoria miniatures there's a lot of third-party vendors that produce stuff for customizing especially orcs and guard tend to be the one orcs guard yeah. and i think chaos also like Spellcrow yeah. and and puppets war do some really neat chaos bits as well um the, you know, those are armies that either there's a wide variety of things you could do with them that GW's model line doesn't actively support. Even if you work Forge World into it, people want to do alternatives. And as you said, you know, like putting third party bits on GW models, totally fine. In fact, I think G- GW stores have the general policy of as long as it's 50, like 51% base GW model, third party bits on top of it are totally fine. Yeah. 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 So that, you know, go for it. If you, you know, put wings on Slime Gwinius, go for it, son. I mean, just have fun with it. I, I, there's no, absolutely nothing wrong with that. Right, now we have a couple of Twitter questions. And one of these is actually, <laughs> we actually got them last week and then we ended up cutting it because we realized that when we were recording, it's like, oh, wait, we didn't quite get the answer right. So we're going <laughs> to do over. So first one is from Mark Bradley, and Mark writes, Question, if I have a Screamer Killer with its terrifying rule within eight inches of a demon pack with an icon, 
Does it mean the demon player never gets the benefit from rolling a one as it auto becomes a two, or because he physically rolled a one, does he get the ability regardless? Secondly, to my first question, would this work against the Tyranid player? If he were to play against Tau, as the Tau player with a bonding knife needs to roll a six, but due to the Screamer Killer's terrifying rule, he would only need to roll a five on his morale. So first off, let's look at that Tyranid Screamer Killer rule, because the wording on that is going to be important. Okay, so the Screamer Killer's terrifying rule states... Your opponent must add one to any morale tests for enemy units within eight inches of one or more screamer killers. So that's that's the core rule. You're adding to the morale test result. And from the core rule book, let's you know morale tests just so that we all know how those work. This is on page six. Or no, sorry, this is phase six. This is on page one hundred eighty three of the core rule book, or it's going to be on page six of the fold out core rule. But anyway, so. To take a morale test, roll a dice, and add the number of models from the unit that have been slain this turn. If the result of the morale test, so the result is, is die plus modify, like die plus total uh, casualties. If the morale test exceeds the highest leadership characteristic in the unit, the test has failed. For every point you go over, you lose a model. So this is adding one to the morale test. So it's basically treating it like an extra casualty. This is not changing the die roll. This isn't the same as uh, as a weapon skill, ballistic skill, armor save, where it's actually a modifier to the die roll. This is a modifier to the test result, and that matters because of the way, for example, the icon is worded. Um, we'll just pick an icon at Randall because they don't have a standard icon rule. It's just they all happen to be worded more or less the same. So let's look at... Oh, we'll start with the first one. Blood letters. This is on page 103 of the Chaos Demons Codex. Demonic icon. If you roll a one when taking a morale test for a unit of, with any demonic icons, reality blanks, the demonic horde is bolstered, no models flee, and D6 slain blood letters are instead added to the unit. So you note, it's not whether the morale it, test result is one. It's whether it's your morale test die roll. Yes. It's, it's the, not yeah. the result of the test. Right. It's the actual roll. So as he said, it's like... You physically rolled a one, so you would get the ability. So, yeah. So, yes, terrifying will not affect a demonic icon because it doesn't change. In this case, you're adding to a test result, not modifying the die rolled. It's a little bit different, but it is there. And the same thing applies for Tau Bonding Knives because the Bonding Knife says if you roll a six when taking a morale test. So, because in this case, tests do not function the way a normal die roll does. So, terrifying will have no effect on either Tau who roll a six or demons that roll a one. It's basically, it doesn't mod. It's not a modification of their leadership characteristic, which also would not affect the die roll. Yeah. And it's not a modifier of the die roll. It's a modifier of the test results. So in this case, screamer killer terrifying, no effect. These, these abilities will still function exactly the same way as they do normally. Next Twitter or next Twitter question is from Dylan Nelson. And Dylan writes, hi, guys. I think I know how it works, but if I take the Nihilag Dynastic Code from Necron Codex, page 109, does this mean my units will always gain the reroll ones to hit during Overwatch since there is no way for me to move during the preceding movement, opponent's movement? Keep up the great podcast. Um, this one's actually pretty easy because it spells this out in the uh, rule. Uh, reroll hit rolls of one for units with this code whenever they shoot, including firing Overwatch as long as they did not move in the preceding movement phase and they have not disembarked from a transport during this turn. Turn always refers to player turn, and the preceding movement phase is your opponent's movement phase. 
So yes, they will get their ones in Overwatch. Yeah, and that's that's been pretty consistent in the rules for a couple of editions now. It's like as long as you anything that's like the preceding movement phase is the movement phase that happened immediately before whatever you're doing. So really the only time that you wouldn't get the ones on Overwatch is if you had to like emergency disembark from a transport that was blown up on your opponent's turn. Yes. So if somebody blew up a ghost arc and you embark disembarked from it, you would not get your ones. That is absolutely yeah. right. Mm-hmm. But that would be like the only case. Yes. So hopefully those that answers that question. But yeah, you I think you had it right, Dylan. I think you under so I think your your initial guess is probably correct that you do get that reroll of one. All right. And then finally, we're back to list reviews. Yay. <laughs> this one's from Paul Hunt. <laughs> no, I, I joke. I like I like list reviews. But I threw this one in A because it was pretty much the next one, the hopper. He's he needs it in September, and this one is going to be a challenge for me based on my unpopular opinions. <laughs> So Paul writes, hi, preferred enemies. I have a list for you to look at. I'm going to Warhammer World, the 40K Mecca, for the second heat in GW's Grand Tournament in September. Here's the list I would like to, like you to take a look at. So he has two battalions. One is World Eaters and one is Corn Demons. His World Eaters detachment. His ha- headquarters are a, his HQs are a Dark Apostle with a Power Maul and an Exalted Champion. Both with Mark of Corn, obviously. Uh, then his troops are a unit of 10 Chaos Cultists. Uh, the ca- normal cultists are auto pistol and brutal assault weapon. The co- champion has an auto gun. The, then two units of Berserkers. One is a Berserker champion with a power fist. And then seven Berserkers with chain axes. And then another unit of Berserkers with, uh, uh, eight guys with chain sword and bolt pistol and a champion with a power fist with a chain sword and power fist. He has a hellbrute with double hellbrute fists, two rhinos with combi bolters. And then on his corn demons, uh, he has a bloodthirster of insensate rage, uh, with the armor of scorn, uh, demonic prince of chaos with a demonic axe and skull reaver. I guess is armor of scorn just a normal ability they have, or is that a relic? That is, uh, armor of scorn is a, uh, oh, it's a relic. Okay. Yeah, that's the that's the relic. Okay, and Skullroot. So he's obviously spent a command point to get the extra yeah. relic. Okay. Yeah, so his armor scored on the Bloodthirster and Sensate Rage, Skull Reaver on the Demonic the Demon Prince of Chaos. Then a unit of nineteen blood letters and a blood reaper with an icon and an instrument. And then two units of uh, ten blood letters with the blood reaper and an instrument of chaos. No icons on those. Two units of five flesh hounds, and that is seventeen fifty points. Because remember, this is a GW Grand Tournament, 1750 points. And he writes, this comes with an important theme. No guns. Everyone has been telling me Mm -hmm. assault is dead and I'm such a contrary bastard. I want to prove that it can be done. Also, I have a busy summer ahead getting married. Congratulations. And organizing tournaments so I don't have much painting time. The plan. The Bloodthirster has armor scorn for a four-up involm. He rushes up the center with a warp charge for... With warp surge for three-up invulnerable and is a massive distraction carnifex. Also, the Warlord trait gives six up feel no pain. Flesh Hounds cover the advance of the Demon Prince, who has the Relic Axe to make him a mini thirster. Little squads of blood letters drop into clear chaff. Big squad of letters have the banner for a 3d6 inch charge and pour into the gap left. Uh, Berserkers and Hellbrute also rush up. They usually get there as the opponent is too busy trying to shoot the bloodthirster. The whole list has two combi bolters and 21 bolt pistols as the only guns, which is not entirely true. He also has nine auto pistols and an auto gun, but... <laughs> We'll, we'll, 
we'll, we'll ignore those. The tournament is straight Eternal War missions from the main rulebook, so taking objectives each turn is not important. I've done a lot of damage with the list so far, but not survived a whole game. Thoughts? Remember, the key is minimum guns. Thanks in advance, Paul Hunt. <laughs> well, so I will say this. This is very similar to the old uh, KDK list I ran. and uh, I was going to say, I thought you would like this the, one. Yeah, the the as you mentioned, like the nine auto pistols and the auto gun. Yes, those are technically in the army, but I ran a list similar to this for about two years, and I think I fired those guns twice. <laughs> like, I, I would usually just skip shooting because I'm like, they're not doing anything. I'm just going to advance, you know. Yeah. Or I'm not even advancing. I'm not going to shoot because it's not worth it. No, I, I, I like this list. I think there's a lot of good things about it. I do like that it gives you a bunch of uh, a bunch of command points, and you have a bunch of bodies. You have a couple big units, a couple big targets. There's a few tweaks that I would make to it, mostly because I love Karn and I want to get him in every list I build. Right. Uh, so what I did is th- the only thing that I really that really sticks out to me that is not good is the two uh, Fleshhound units. Fleshhounds used to be amazing. They are trash right now. They don't really provide anything other than they're fast. And you have two rhinos that are basically just as fast. So I would pull the flesh hounds out, which saves you 156 points. And that gives you exactly enough points, because I did this up in Battle Scribe. It gives you exactly enough points to make three changes. You swap the Exalted Champion for Karn. Um, the Exalt and Karn is uh, 100 and... 160. Pull them up here. Yeah, 160 points. So that that's that is 100... Uh, that's 90 points that, you, that goes right there. You take... On the two units of Berserkers, add the Icon. It's 10 points per unit. The Icon allows you to re-roll failed charges. You are going to want that. That is yes. one of the best things about that unit. So you put the t- you spend 20 points on the Icons, and then you have 40 points left over. Bump up that Squad Occultist to 20. Because what you're going to want to do with the Squad Occultist is use Tide of Traders to replenish it and move it around and do things. And if it's a unit of 20 instead of a unit of 10, that stratagem, when you do get to use it, is going to be a lot more effective. That'll help with survivability because you're going to wind up having more bodies on the field that they have to chew through. More, You're going to have more punch and assault with your Berserkers and with Karn. And really the Flesh Hounds, other than just being like units that are fast, don't really provide anything. Right. I think you're going to be much better off having the extra bodies of Cultists and the Banners and Karn than, than the flesh hounds. What do you think of the uh, the double fist hellbrute? So I don't like it as much as the uh, as the Mauler fiend, but it's twenty points cheaper. So the or it's yes, uh, it's thirty points cheaper because uh, you can basically take a double double fist Mauler fiend with the lasher tendrils, and it's thirty points more than the hellbrute. You could basically do everything else that I said: swap up the drop the flesh hounds, swap out the uh, you know uh, swap out Karn. Add the two inch, the the two icons to the berserkers. Add in the uh, Mauler fiend instead of the Hellbrute, and you basically wind up with like ten or twenty points that you could spend adding more cultists. You could do it's. There's probably something you could do there with like the ten. I think it's ten points left over, but I couldn't really find a good usage for it. And I would rather have the ten extra bodies, the cultists, than having a because. The advantage for the Mauler Fiend versus the Hellbrute is the Mauler Fiend is faster and has more wounds, but the Hellbrute actually hits better because it hits on threes. Yes. They're the same toughness. They're the same 
uh, armor save. So it's although I think the Hellbrute actually may have an invul. Not the Hellbrute. No, uh, no the the Mollerfiend does. So the Mollerfiend does have an invul. So I, if you could tweak the list and find the the thirty points to to swap out the Hellbrute for a Mollerfiend, I would probably do it. But I don't really know where else I would do it. And it, you're effectively just making it's thirty points to get a better version of what you have. It's a little bit faster and it'll keep up a little bit better, and it's much more of a distraction uh, item. But I don't know. I don't know that it's. You wind up when I was doing it. You wind up with about ten to fifteen dead points that I wasn't really sure what to do with. You could add a few more cultists, but having having twelve cultists instead of ten doesn't really impact it. it it's really you're really going to get more benefit there if you bump it up to twenty and you go bef- you know a bigger squad. Right. So there's a couple of things you could do. You could. I mean, you could do that and then take those extra points and throw in plasma pistols on berserkers, but that well, kind of goes away from the whole no guns thing, say, you know. Yeah. So uh, it's, I don't know. Th- those are items. Uh, maybe you throw a havoc launcher on one of the rhinos. Like, there's there's a couple options you can do with those points, but I would I would probably personally leave the hell brood in and have a twenty man unit of cultists, and then that gives you two big blob units that they have to deal with. Including one that you can pop a stratagem and replenish and bring back. Right. But otherwise, it's a, I like the list a lot. Yeah. One thing that the uh, Defi- or the Hellbrute has over the, uh, the Mauler Fiend is it doesn't degrade. That is true. Yeah. I mean, it's going to have comparable yeah. attacks. It won't have as many attacks as if it had Lasher Tendrils. But it doesn't matter how hard you hit it. It's not going to... Because the Mauler Fiend suddenly, like, if you take it down to its bottom band, it's only moving slower hitting yeah. slightly you know hitting at about the same strength as a marine so it suddenly gets yeah, really yeah. ineffective where the hellbrute with the uh, hellbrute power fists the hellbrute fists is always going to hit like a truck yes and like i i thought about it because like his if you're taking the flesh hounds out you do lose a little bit of that quick hit you know a unit charging forward but i think with the rhinos and the Bloodthirster and the Demon Prince and the Hellbrute being able to, you know, uh, move in advance. I, I think you're going to be able to charge forward fast enough to get what you, you know, get done what you want to do and put pressure on your opponent mm-hmm. without having without having the Flesh Hounds or without having to have the extra movement of the Mauler Fiend. Yeah, I, I think looking at it more, I think, yeah, the Hellbrute's actually, in this list, is actually probably better. And there's a big difference between hitting on fours and hitting on threes. And I think that... Yes. Yeah, that's yeah. that's always been one of the weaknesses of the demonic, like the Demon Forge vehicles, is that they they do have that lower weapons, or the, the not as good weapon skill or ballistic skill. Yeah, and there are some tr- specific Hellbrute stratagems in the Chaos Marine Codex. Uh, I don't have them in front of me, but I do know that there's there's more. There are some specific Hellbrute stratagems uh, which give you some more flexibility than the Mauler Fiends specifically do, because basically the Mauler Fiend ones are only you know. It'd be impacted by the vehicle ones, whereas there are a few specific Hellbrute ones. Well, the, the, Hellbrute, the one Hellbrute one they have is Fire Frenzy, which is not going to help. Okay, well, fair enough. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> and unfortunately, it doesn't get the uh, benefit of Demon Forge because it's not a demon vehicle. So. Right. So, I mean, I think with uh, I think with the points, I think that's probably the changes I would make. Because I, Karn is a beast, and you absolutely want to have him in the, in the list uh, if you can. And I think that... Other than the, the flesh hounds, really only provide just a unit running at something like they they have mobility, but I don't think they hit hard enough or are tough enough and survivable enough to really make an impact that you're wanting. 
So I would probably say swap that out and have extra extra bodies of cultists, mm-hmm. and uh, I think you're going to like that. Yeah, yeah. That no, I I think I, I'm I'm curious to see how well this works because as we said, I'm a fan of more of a combined arm style. I, yeah, yeah. I, I look corn doesn't really do that. No, corn does not. <laughs> and it, you know his point of like, well, the list never survives. Corn doesn't care. Yeah, corn doesn't care who dies. Corn just wants skulls. Well, that's that's why I always loved, and not to go back to the KDK stuff, but that's why I always loved the Corn Demon Ken because you got bonuses whether you died or your opponent died, right? And like bringing back some mechanic to build a list out of, off of that would be amazing. And like I really do hope at some point they bring that faction back or those rules back because it was so much fun to play. Mm-hmm. But yeah, I'm, I'm with you. I think the flesh hounds that that was one thing that struck me, especially at, at five models per. They're really not that tough. And they're really, yeah. yeah, I mean, yeah, they're fast, but like you said, rhinos are faster. Yeah. I mean, flesh hounds used to be really good. Flesh hounds were a core part of my corn demon army in seventh, but they're in eighth. They just don't do enough. And, you know, while he said, you know, it doesn't really matter about taking objectives turn for turn. If you're playing eternal war missions, a lot of those are still revolved around being on certain points at the end of the game. So yep. having something yeah, exactly. like tide of traders ready to go on, you know, to play near the end of the game and flood, you know, flood the an objective somewhere. You definitely want to be able to do that. So, but for the most part, this is an army that is going to be playing to either table or be tabled. Yes. <laughs> but then again, corn, that's what it does. And if you have a letter you'd like us to, like to write to us, whether it's uh, discussing something we talked about on the show, asking a rules question, asking for a list review, or asking to have an event or something like that promoted, uh, we're glad to do it. All you have to do, we've got three ways you can uh, send us a message. First off is emailing us, and our email address is our first name at Preferred Enemies. So Rob at, Kevin at, Dennis at, Richard at PreferredEnemies.com. Uh, second one is our Facebook page. We are at facebook.com slash preferred enemies. And, uh, you can, uh, like us there. We post about, like, share news that's coming out, things that we're working on. Uh, I posted photos and, uh, videos from, uh, Siege World and Dennis posted photos from his Warhammer Citadel trip. So, uh, you can like us there, send us a message. And, uh, the third way is on Twitter. We are preferred enemy singular on Twitter. And uh, so we put out calls for questions on all three formats. Uh, so you can uh, basically email us, message us on Facebook, message us on Twitter. We take all those messages, put them together, get our list for the next episode and read them on the air. Uh, also, we have a Patreon if you want to support the show. And this helps us do things like go to more events such as Siege World or Iron Halo or Renegade Open. If you uh, want to support the show, uh, it's uh, patreon.com slash preferred enemies. Uh, we don't lock any of our episodes behind a paywall, so there's no obligation. Uh, you will always Our podcast will always be free for listening. Uh, but uh, we are working on some uh, perks. We should be getting our dice from Chessix any day now, and we'll be opening up uh, orders for that for our Patreon, uh, our Patreon fans uh, pretty soon. And... Uh, like I said, if you want to join there, even if it's it's basically an online tip jar, if you even just want to put in a buck a month, enough people put in a dollar, it adds up. Uh, so we're going to go ahead and take a break for sponsor identification. And when we come back, we'll be talking about our main topic, which is some of the stuff that's, that's been happening since our last episode, <laughs> because we love indistinct topics. And uh, we'll see you in a bit. Miniatures. We build them. We paint them. We love them. That's why we also want to get them to the battle and back again safely. And that's where Kara Multicase comes in. They offer a complete model storage and transport system. They offer a wide selection of core trays for standard size miniatures, as well as custom cut trays for specific models. 
KR's trays are made of a soft foam, available in a variety of colors that won't scratch or snag your models. And to protect the foam, the trays are carried in easily stackable, swappable cardboard cases. They also offer a full range of Kaiser bags, backpacks, and aluminum cases for transporting your KR cases. You can even choose from pre-built tray selections to suit your army, or use the autofill app to find just the right trays for your particular force. Whatever your game, 40K, X-Wing, Warm Hordes, or Historicals, KR Multicase has the cases to fit your needs. You can find out more at krmulticase.com. KR Multicase, soft foam for your figures, hard cases for the soft foam. Are you tired of playing on a boring battlefield? Do you want to step up the quality of your gaming table and make your battle look real? Then you need to check out the battle mats from GameMat. Their professionally designed rubber-based mats are just what your gaming table needs. Available in a variety of styles, with everything from rolling grasslands to urban war zones, winter wastelands to alien deserts, there's a GameMat mat to fit any kind of terrain. Their mats are padded, anti-slip, waterproof, and when you're done rolling dice and battling on your mat, just roll it up and stick it in the convenient carrying bag for easy transport and storage. And if you don't have a gaming table, they've got you covered with their folding Gboard portable gaming area and their line of pre-painted resin terrain. If you're ready to upgrade your gaming table, head over to www.gamemat.eu and find the gaming mat that's right for you. Game Mat, giving your armies the battlefield they deserve. And we're back. So now it's time to talk about our main topic, which is a trio of topics. So we're going to start off, Dennis, I'm going to put you on the spot, and uh, talk about your trip to the Warhammer Citadel, which you did not get there on the opening weekend, but the day after. I, I did, and actually it might have been kind of good that I got there the day after, because I got to see the store and how it probably functioned on a day-to-day basis as opposed to an event function. True. Um, first off, the store's in Grapevine, Texas. And it's in their historic downtown district. Because I know some people have posted, like, the store just didn't look like much from the outside and whatnot. Well, there's a reason for that, is is they're kind of matched up with what the buildings look like in historic grapevine. Most of those have plaques. Uh, this one didn't, but most of the buildings there have plaques outside stating that this building served this purpose at this time. And, and so... The, the way the store looks kind of fits in with all of those other historic buildings. If you're expecting so. some big, shiny edifice that is going to be like the U.S. Warhammer World, this is not that. Right. I mean, you're not going to get <laughs> that experience. Correct. But, I mean, don't let that persuade you not to go because it's still really cool. Um, I'll say that the first negative, though, when you do get there, there's like three or four parking spots in front of the store. That's it. Is there parking elsewhere? In the- yes, there, there's plenty of public parking. You'll have to walk like a block or two mm-hmm. um, because it's like the, like I said, the historic downtown district where parking, they have public parking lots throughout and, and lots of crosswalks and you just push a button and it kind of the lights will change for you. Mm-hmm. So it's very pedestrian friendly. So it, it did not take long for me to find a parking spot and walk to the store. So that, that was pretty nice. And then when you walk inside, it's a games workshop store and that that's the big feel to it. But as they state on the webpage, it's, it's actually a games workshop store plus more. Mm-hmm. Um, I remember when we went to the store in Memphis. Yes. It's a lot like that. Okay. Where yeah. it, one side is the store, the other side is the game area. Uh huh. And the store itself is bigger than your normal Warhammer store. And 
inside, yes, they've got all the products. They've got them lining the shelves, but they also have painting stations, which I think is a new thing that most of the stores are starting to have. Yeah. And they say, yeah, if you want to learn to paint, we'll have someone sit with you and kind of talk you through the painting thing and, and get your free model to paint. And I thought that was kind of cool because it's like, dang. And then the people at the store were very friendly and they were trying to greet everyone who came in and introduce them. If they were busy with someone else, they say, Oh, can, can you hang on a minute? I've got to go greet the person that just came in. And it, it was just super friendly. Um, the other thing that's I'll call neat is on the, like when you walk in the door, the right hand side of the store, they might, I hope they don't remodel quickly because then this is out of date, <laughs> but there, there's a whole book section. And it's all the Black Library books. There were so many of them. I, I couldn't list off all yeah, the Yeah, because, like, like just, to, just to compare our, our Games Workshop store here in Kansas City, which is actually going to be moving soon to a location that's probably going to be twice as big as it is now. But right now, their Black Library section is one thin sh- section of shelf, like, in the back of the store. Yeah, th- this is a – it's still only one no, – I don't know the word for it – display case. Not That's not the right word. Rah. But it's got – it's not even a rack. It's like something you'd see in a Barnes and Noble type thing, where they have books on all four sides of it. Oh, okay. And oh, the little yeah, like the spin rack. Yeah, except it's a, yeah. it's much bigger than a spin rack. Sure, sure, sure. Um, but it, it's it makes me think of a Barnes and Noble. And then next to it, it had places you can sit down and go re- read a book. Oh, nice. And it had a table there, so if you had a drink or something, you could read that. And they even had a chessboard, which I put pictures of. So yeah, I saw that with the uh, <laughs> the Eldar versus Imperium. Yeah. Looked like all the pieces are made from models and bases. Yes, I mean that that looked fantastic. But so there's just places to sit and chill, which mm-hmm. you don't have in a normal Games Workshop store, right? Um, and then also in that section, people ask, "Where's the Forge World?" There's a wall of Forge World, and it's pretty impressive. I mean, my only knock on the Forge World stuff is you can't actually see what they are unless because it's go all up. plain white boxes. <laughs> yeah, unless you go up and read it. Yeah. So that, but Forge World's always going to be like that, so. right? And so I, I just thought that was neat. Like, and then when you kind of take in all that, well, no, I'll stay in the first room. On the like in between the top shelves and the ceilings on the first room, there's boxes of like empty boxes of old minis of all of the stuff from like the 1980s to about. Well, I didn't see where it stopped. So kind of like the history of yes of was, Games Workshop products. Yes, and you, it was kind of. I mean, I posted some pictures of it so we could see the space orcs. The space elves. <laughs> and it was just funny seeing those. And I also, there was the, the picture on there of the space dwarves. <laughs> and there's. So, I mean, with the back when it was basically like, because back in the day, Citadel was producing models primarily for D&D. And so they had elves and dwarves and, you know, they kind of did the whole warm or fantasy thing. And then they're like, well, why don't we put this in space? And it's kind of what it seemed because the names in the boxes, space elves, space orcs, space dwarves. So, but the funny story about the Space Dwarves box um, that we were told is when they're putting up all those boxes that they'd um, pulled out of the archives, because uh-huh. Games Workshop has archives somewhere in the United States, don't know where, so it's a hidden probably secret. Probably Memphis. Yeah, probably, but <laughs> a hidden secret location. Um, they put them all up, and the Space Dwarves box fell down, and it wouldn't stay up there. <laughs> um, so then the manager went over, and he took a look at it, and he's like, okay, here's the problem. It was still in its original shrink wrap. <laughs> really? <laughs> so he had to undo the shrink wrap. Break the factory the bo- seal. Yeah, open the box of the space dwarves and then take them out of the box so the, bo- so the box could then go up onto the wall properly <laughs> and not be too heavy to fall down. 
Wow. So there are some space dwarves out there. Well, he said they got shipped back to the archives. So the space dwarves are still alive in the archives. <laughs> the squats are still out there. Archived in a Necron something or other. Yeah. <laughs> Trazen's got them in his in his stasis vault somewhere. Probably. Sure. <laughs> that's that's the excuse they can use when they bring them back, maybe. Yeah. Um, <laughs> Using the original 1980s sculpts. <laughs> oh, no. No, please don't. Aww. Please do not. Yay, they... fine cast. <laughs> no, they'd still be in, they'd be in no, plastic, but they'd be in the same quality plastic, like that light gray injection molded plastic from the 80s. And uh, they just looked a little bit more cartoony than. Well, yeah, all the stuff did back then. I know. Uh, but then, so that that's the store side of it. Then as you go, there's kind of like a a wide hallway to get to the back. And what's neat there is, you know how people have display cases where they show off models? Yeah. They have display cases to show off models. But what I liked about these was it was showing off mostly gray plastic or gray resin models. And why I think I like that, because at least especially with the Forge World ones, you can see what it looks like before you go buy a box because you can't really see a picture of it. Right. And it's just, for me, kind of neat to see this is what the gray plastic you're buying looks like assembled. You can come up with your own ideas on how to paint it. Okay. And so I, I guess I'm so used to pe- seeing the, the finished product that this was kind of neat seeing just here's the interim step. Yeah. And I think it was also really needed for the Forge World since Forge World has Again, no, you have no point yeah. of reference for everything. But And then when you go to the back, that's where the gaming area and cafe is. Okay. Um it's a little bit smaller than I was expecting. I was kind of hoping to get more of a meal than just a snack and a drink. Yeah. But th- if you're in a gaming place, you're probably going to... I hear cafe and I think more of a sit-down, half-restaurant thing. Yeah, but this is more just like a little coffee bar. Yeah, exactly. And tons of choices. And, and I picture, posted pictures of the artwork that yeah. was drawn on all the little bench tables that you can sit at. Um, and then you like our, our GW store here has like I guess two playing areas. Yeah, pretty much. This one had three rows of two um, four by sixes and one four by four. Okay. So really long. So it's what six four by, or six by four tables and three four by four tables. Okay. So plenty of of space to play games in there. Okay. So um, and pot, the four pot, by fours for like kill team or for uh, not so, kill, so much kill team but like Necromunda or stuff like that. Probably. And all the boards or are, demo games, yeah. And all the boards were all using the battle board stuff, and right? Well, yeah, they, they would. all looked really nice. I would say, from a, a, our standards, it might be terrain light, but it all looked wonderful. Mm-hmm. So that's the big thing. And I guess you remember the the big blue space marine that we stood outside of. In yeah, front there's of a big green one there, isn't it? Yes, there. There's a salamander and there's a blood angel. Okay, and then there's one that looks like a rusted statue. Oh, nice. And so they, they said, yeah, the, the blue ultramarine guy is still in, in archives or storage somewhere, but these were the ones they pulled out for this store. And it was, and that was kind of nice just standing by. And then you saw the relics that they reco- recovered from the Memphis store. Yes, like the, uh, Harle- or the, not the striking scorpion. scorpion helmet and the shuriken pistol. Yes. Yeah, I remember the, I saw those and that, yeah, that brought me back. <laughs> Cause that was one of the things I really loved about going to the Memphis store was seeing like Eldar artifacts because I was an Eldar player. Right. And so it was kind of nice that they're on display again. So I really liked it. Um, so no, it was, it was really cool. Um, I, I think some of the detractions I'd heard was in a big event. If you have too many bodies there, like the opening weekend was, it probably gets hot. Because it's a metal build; it's like yeah. an old metal building, and 
So that that would be the only downside. The, the plus sides are it is just a fantastic place to go visit. I mean, I don't reg- I mean, I I had other reasons for going down there, but I was planning on going down there for for us it's an 8-hour drive. Right. And I don't I would not regret doing an 8-hour drive. I wouldn't do it every weekend. Oh, absolutely but, not. But, but maybe like <laughs> once a year or twice a year. Make a just pilgrimage a out pilgrimage there. out there because and one of the things um they said is they want to do lots of events and put the events on their calendar like months in advance so people can plan to trips go down. out there. Yeah. And one thing he said is he wants to do narrative events down there. Oh, cool. And I think that's something that we've talked about that we just don't see a lot of. My my concern would be that e- what you said, like six four by sixes and three four by fours. My concern is that it wouldn't be enough tables if you've got a lot of people coming, unless they have right. event space elsewhere downtown that they can Which use. Which they, they've gone to a hotel before, and if it gets an event's too large, they'd probably have to do that again. Right. Because this would be more for – inside the store would be for a small events right. where they could cap it. And if they're going to do a large event, they would have to move to a hotel location. Right. Which I think they did for what was originally supposed to be the opening of the store. Correct. Yeah. What it sounds like to me, though, is that there's no reason why they couldn't have more of these in the U.S. Like maybe, you know, they used to have battle bunkers, which was ba- like the Memphis store was the last battle bunker, really. Uh, they had one in Chicago. They had one in L.A. Um, they used to have one, I think, in Baltimore because uh, Game Wo- Games Workshop used to be based out of Baltimore, at least on the U.S. side, until they moved to Memphis. So it doesn't sound like it's anything that they couldn't recreate in a couple of other places in the U S just because the U S is huge. It's a little big. Yeah. And that, I think that's what makes this a bit different from like a Warhammer world where, and also, I mean, yes, Warhammer world should be the Mecca. That should be the big thing, but there's a space between the Warhammer world experience and the standard games workshop store experience that I think Games Workshop isn't covering. And it sounds like this kind of hits that spot, that sweet spot, but it does, it feel a bit weird that it's, there's one of, one of it in all of North America. And that's, that seems odd. True. And and maybe they can use this as a trial grounds to see how this one does. If this does well, pick like a location on the east and a location on the west and that yeah, way they've I got think more it, of the- yeah if there were three of them i think that would one for the midwest one for the west coast one for the east coast that would that would be much better and and the other thing that they they're trying to do with the events is get um gw people in house for like either i would guess don't quote me on any of this because it's all conjecture book signings or other things so they had one of the gw artists in there for opening week right right the in fact the gal that's doing the web comic for them yes. and, and did uh did the uh the comics for like how to play wrath and glory that they did so and she's the one who's good she's gonna be doing a new web comic for okay. them so yeah and she did all the artwork on the tables and whatnot too, mm-hmm. so and then like they had uh i think was it becca scott who did the intro videos for how to play uh Age of Sigmar that they recently released. So, um, yeah, so they've had, yeah, so being able to bring in studio guests would, yes. would that would be an event that would actually draw people out yes. there. So, so that's something that those stores would have access to that nobody else has. So that would, yeah, right. definitely that, be a that's reason. the big draw for it. Yeah. It would be the one thing I think would be really cool, but I think this is something that would have to still be unique to, well, it wouldn't have to be, but, um, I think one thing people were kind of hoping for was, you know, obviously you wouldn't have like all the the huge number of models displayed that they have at like Warhammer World, 
but I think having having a space where pe- they could have like a couple of like the really big dioramas that people go to for like the exhibition hall at at Warhammer World in in England have have something like that experience would be nice. I don't know that they have a hall they could do, right? But it's like they'd have to expand to it. Well, (laughs) the thing is, I think that's one of the things that people were hoping for is that it would be. Yes, it's not going to be on the same scale as Warhammer World, but it's going to be a sim a a smaller but similar like a smaller version of the same experience. And this doesn't. It sounds like it it definitely is more just along the lines of this is what the the battle bunker was like in Memphis, which is good. I like. I you know. I liked the battle bunker in Memphis, and you know the one time we got to go, and uh, so it's it's nice to kind of have that experience back. And that also only had about like six or eight tables in it, so it, it wasn't a huge space, but it was it was still a good sized gaming space. Yeah, the front of the building does look a bit unassuming, but it it sounds like it's a much larger space inside than the front would. Yeah, would it, indicate. It, it goes back for it's got some depth in there. Okay. So, but A plus would travel again. Oh yeah, I definitely, and I would. Like to if I don't go to one of the narrative events, I do want to hit at least sometime next year. Mm-hmm. And well, I will definitely look at trying <laughs> to go with you because that because I would I do want to go. I want I want to I want to go down there and maybe even record from there for that would for be a day. fun. That would be fun. I like mean, play on play on one of the one or two of the tables and yeah, and, and I I could like plan out what Forge World things I want and then hopefully they could have them in stock because I do like having Forge World on the U.S. side. Yes. Which is a nice transition. <laughs> Did you set that up just for that? Halfway. Halfway. Okay. Which, which is a, a transition to the, the our next topic, which is Forge World and the pricing and shipping changes, which has... The Forge World. Oh, holy shit. <laughs> what have we done? Yes. Uh, so, for those of you who have avoided the internet for the last couple of weeks, because, oh my god, the salt... The pure salt and rage and anger. Um, so, uh, this was something that was announced. What at like the beginning of August that they were going to be doing? Yeah, yeah that they were right after right after Gen Con. I know that. Right. So this was something that was announced, uh, and we knew it was going to happen. Was that games were they? They made two announcements about Forge World. The first one was they were going to start shipping. They were going to open up a North American shipping center. So. Any orders from North America could actually be shipped from the U.S. rather than from the U.K. And the idea was this would allow them to get cheaper, faster shipping, and uh, they'd be able to, you know, keep stuff in stock and get people their orders that much that much faster. The other thing they were going to do, and I don't think anybody had a problem with the idea of faster Forge World shipping. Everyone was on board with that. The other thing they announced was that Forge World, you would now be able to buy stuff in your native currency. So if you are a U.S. buyer, you'll be buying stuff in U.S. dollars. If you're Canadian, be Canadian dollars. If you're Australian, it'd be Australian dollars and uh, and so on and so forth. There was already a little bit of trepidation about this because this means that you can you would no longer be able to play the currency conversion game, which is I wait for, the, for my currency to be strong against the pound, and then that's when I'll buy my Games Workshop stuff. Uh, whatever your feelings are on Brexit, I know a lot of people outside of England looked – they saw the dropping pound when it dropped to like nearly what – like one twenty five, like $1.25 per pound. 
yeah, and like started buying up their Forge World then rather than buy it when it was much stronger at like a dollar sixty per pound. I will admit I was one of those people, right? Yeah, I so, absolutely did that too. Yeah, so I mean, it it totally makes sense, but also it made the Forge World site a little bit of an outlier because Games Workshop prices everything else like on game the GW Prime site was everything was priced in local currency. So if you're on the US site, you're you're looking at US prices. If you're on the New Zealand site, you're seeing New Zealand prices. If you're on the Swedish site, you're seeing Swedish prices. Now, Forge World was an outlier. Everything was always in pounds and you had your bank had to do the currency conversion. There might be fees involved with that. Um also you'd have to deal with the fact that I know some people had the issue of, hey, why is my bank balking when I buy something from Forge World? <laughs> is it a forgery? Is it a, you know, or it's like right now, um, in fact, some of our patrons may have noticed that Patreon recently changed their pay p- payment processor to a UK processor. And I know two months in a row now, like when my Patreon subscriptions go through, I get an alert from my bank saying, hey, is this okay? And they'll lock down my car, like my bank account until I give them the okay that that's fine. And they do it fast enough. We were actually at the mall this weekend and we went into a store and like, like half an hour ago before we had used our debit card and it was fine. Then we went to use it again and it was suddenly being declined. And I, I checked my phone and like two minutes before we had stepped up to the register, Hey, this order came in from my Patreon. Is that okay? I'm like, text them. Yes. Okay, your card's unlocked now. Have fun. <laughs> so that can cause the, the international payment processing can cause issues, especially in this time and, and place of, you know, this age of banks being really paranoid about stolen credit cards and fraud and things like that. So there's some definite perks to using na- native currency in a native payment processor. Where this fell down, though, for a lot of people is that the prices that were finally set on the Forge World website were not straight currency conversions. So, for example, I'll just go ahead and bring up the Forge World site right now, and we'll bring up another one in just side by side so that we can compare and contrast. So we've got we've got one on the US page and one on the UK page. So somebody pick a uh, Forge World product for me to look at. Tantalus. A Tantalus? Okay, you've got it. All right, so on the UK site, a Tantalus costs 100 pounds sterling. A Tantalus on the US site costs 155. Now, that is not due to currency conversion because 100 British pounds at, at, at time of recording, which is uh, on Labor Day, mon- uh, Monday, September 3rd, 2018, 100 pounds sterling is $128.75. So suddenly there's a nearly $30 upcharge on buying this uh, in the U.S. Um, this has made a lot of people very upset for obvious reasons because it seems like it's suddenly a 20%, uh, a 10 to 20% depending on product upcharge uh, from what they would have paid before. This gets particularly bad if you are from Australia or New Zealand. So, for example, if you're in Australia, that same Tantalus is 230 Australian dollars. And that should be 178 Australian dollars if it were straight currency conversion. So, it is not a small upcharge for shipping to Australia. 
by Australian prices. And I know that was one thing, if you'll remember back to the early days of the podcast, when the Australian exterminatus, <laughs> as it was referred to, hit, um, this was like back in 2011 or 2012, uh, when Games Workshop at the time created a policy that said if you were a independent stockist, you were not allowed to sell Games Workshop product on your online store. All online web orders had to go through Games Workshop itself. You couldn't, yeah. You know, and the thing was, a lot of the stores were offering discounts, which you could not get from Games Workshop directly. And Australian prices are very high. And so a lot of Australian people said, well, I will buy Forge World stuff, especially as Horse Heresy stuff started coming out, and suddenly you could buy Marines and Terminators and stuff in Forge World resin. And because of how currency conversion, even with the increased shipping time and shipping cost, it was way cheaper than buying the plastic versions. That is now no longer the case. And and people are very upset about this to the point that I lost track. And I know, like on the the like one of the fan 40k uh, Facebook pages, they had to start like deleting threads because like all day that this wasn't that this was finally revealed, it was like one call after another for boycott Forge World, boycott Games Workshop. They obviously don't care about us. They've raised prices across the board. I'm just gonna buy Chinese recasts from now on because. The, the prices are too damn high. And I understand that. That is a probably a normal reaction to, you know, it's sticker shock. It is, it's epic sticker shock. However, I'm going to provide a little bit of a counterpoint, and I'm not necessarily going apologist here, but I do want to provide a bit of a counterpoint in that this actually brings things down to uh, actually slightly better than parity with their print catalog prices. Because if you buy your events via their print catalog or at a convention, so for example, Gen Con or LVO or Adepticon, any event where Games Workshop or where Forge World is present and you can buy the product and walk away with it right then, they were not charging you straight currency conversion. They had a price built into the catalog. And many of those prices are 10 to 20% higher than the current US price, like in dollars. So I imagine in their mind, they're actually seeing this as a bit of a price drop. Now, granted, in the print catalog, they didn't have Australian prices, so Australians were always doing the currency conversion game. Right. And again, they had, you know, there was no frame of reference of how much is this stuff going to cost. So the question, and I've also seen people point out that the price increases, it's not a flat 20% across the board. Different models tend to be, uh, their prices went up different amounts for no clear reason. So th- what do we make of the pricing changes and what they mean for, you know, the average, you know, for, for the consumer who may want to buy four drone models, but now suddenly is going to have to fork out an extra 15, 20, 20 plus percent. So I will say this, like GW products are expensive. Like this is a luxury hobby. Prices across the board could probably stand to be 30, 40% lower for everything, including plastic models. So uh, I definitely am not going to be like defending their pricing structure. However, they have a pricing structure. Like if you look at plastic models and just take the stuff off the shelf, a unit of uh, Tempesta Scions is 10 models for 30, $35, whereas like a unit of five Sternguard are $5 for 50 or sorry, five models for $50. And they're essentially the same 
like the same amount of plastic that goes into it, the same models. One is $15 higher because you're going to buy less of it. You're not, you don't need to buy more than a box or two of Stern Guard. Whereas if you're going to play a, a military, military armed and testist army, you're going to buy four or five boxes. So I think this allows them to re- reprice everything to basically make it more in parity with how they price everything on the on the plastics line. Some models go up more because they don't maybe they don't make as many Perfurian uh, knights, so the price has to go up more because they're they're hand casting each of these as they go along. So that price goes up more than it does for uh, the weapon kits for Space Marines, for example. So I. Yeah, it sucks that prices went up. I don't like it either. But at the same time, the this long term, this is better for everybody because you're not going to have the price fluctuations. You're going to be able to just buy stuff when you want to buy it, and it's going to be the price it's going to be. Processing is going to be easier. Shipping is going to be easier. It's going to be easier to budget because you're not going to have to worry about you know factoring in the currency rates or any bank fees. It sucks that they changed it, and it sucks when prices go up. But this is part of running a business. Yeah, it 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 does absolutely. I mean, there's no question that it does suck, and especially if you were. I feel for people who were playing like pure Forge World armies, people who were going hard hardcore on Horse Heresy, mm-hmm. people who are going hardcore on like Deathcore Krieg. Yeah, these armies are going to get more expensive than what you had. Although, so uh, it it's a bad example because right now it, it would be free shipping. Like I'm comparing the cost of a town, like a shipping a townar, for example. Um, townar in the U.S. is three hundred eighty-five dollars. A townar in the U.K. is two hundred fifty pounds, which is three hundred twenty-one dollars. Um, now the thing is, once upon a time was it was what fifteen percent? Basically, shipping was fifteen percent of whatever you bought. It was a percentage mm-hmm. based. So if we have three twenty-one. Times one point one five. The shipping with the the shipping it was three hundred and seventy dollars. Um, U.S. standard delivery is now just a ten dollar fee. So if the shipping was not free for a townar, it'd be three ninety five. It'd be twenty five dollars more expensive. It's still more expensive, but it's not like egregiously so. Now, grant and for smaller orders. Under that hundred, right now it's one hundred and twenty dollars US is the threshold for a free model or for free shipping. Uh, that will go up because that's just kind of a special introductory. We just converted mm-hmm. over. I imagine it's going to be like two hundred, two hundred fifty when it's all said and done. Most Forge World off orders are probably going to be into the free shipping range, and that was something that people always did before. Was I wanted free shipping from England, so me and my friends are going to put together a batch order. I think that still happens to get the free shipping, but it's not necessarily as critical if shipping is relatively inexpensive. Yeah. So there's pluses and minuses. Is it? It's a minus. It is absolutely a minus. And I will Games Workshop look at their pricing possibly, but like you said, they they have an internal pricing model. We don't know what that is. We're not privy to that, and obviously they're not going to say. But yeah, <laughs> we also have to consider that this is a Games Workshop that has been paying a lot more attention to uh, customer feedback. So if it turns out that this is this becomes an issue, then they'll address it. My guess is, like a lot of price increases, and especially because this was not an across-the-board increase on existing 
like prime plastic model lines, but this was, like you said, Forge World, which is the luxury within the luxury. It's this is going to be a case where you'll see some outrage and then people will continue doing what they were doing before. Because let's face it, if the difference between the old Forge World price and the new Forge World price is enough to send you to to hunting down Chinese recasters, you were probably of a mind to go to Chinese recasters anyway. I, I'm mm-hmm. I'm just going to put put that out there that uh, you know if you're that dollar conscience uh, conscious and you absolutely wanted the models from Forge World, if not you know, the models that the Forge World rules represent, I should say, you probably were going to Forge World anyway. I'm not trying to downplay the fact that this is it, it was a sudden shock to people. And I know this is probably going to be another one of those unpopular opinions. It, it, but it, I mean, it, it does suck. If you were looking to buy that one big shiny piece, you now have to budget a bit more. And for a lot of people, maybe that does hit that price threshold where they're just like, mm, it's not worth it to me. And that's a lost sale. And Games Workshop is going to, lo- they're going to look at the numbers on sales over the next couple of months and they're going to see if, you know, let's say through the end of the year and they're going to see whether or not this has worked out for them and if it hasn't they'll adjust yeah i mean they're a business if if business drops so if you i'll say i'm not i'm not necessarily saying for a boycott or anything i i'm still gonna buy games workshop stuff but if this is a big enough issue to you that you don't feel that games workshop should have raised the prices on this then by all means hold off on buying the stuff now should you buy recast? I'm going to say personally, my feeling is no. I know not everybody shares that. Um, yeah, not everybody on the podcast. Not everybody on the podcast shares that. Having worked with your fine with your Chinese recasts, please buy Forge World if you're going to buy Forge World. It's much, <laughs> much, much easier to work with. But, um, but no, I I really think that I mean, vote with your wallet. Absolutely, I'm not going to tell you not like whether I don't think. I don't think there's enough people that will follow through on a boycott to really make as big a difference as you think. But if everybody just kind of just says, no, I'm not, I'm just not going to buy any Forge World stuff and we'll, they'll see how much Forge World's, World sales drop or they might not. So there will be a lot of people who will probably be like, yeah, this sucks. I'll wait a month and buy the thing instead of buying it now. We don't know what that's, you know, what it's going to do. So. They'll look at the numbers and they'll they'll adjust accordingly. Maybe they look at it and say, "Well, but the money we're saving on shipping by having it, in, you know, having a di- second distribution center makes up for the money that we we've lost in those sales that we wouldn't that we're not getting now." They may lo- they may look at that calculus and be like, "That's fine." And I will say, a lot of the the new Games Workshop decisions are, have been thanks to the change in this in CEO they had, and that CEO was the CFO of Forge World. So if yep. anybody's going to be familiar with the numbers of what Forge World, what it's costing to put stuff out, what it's costing to ship it, you also have to figure some of the shipment costs are being worked into the prices here because nothing's being produced, as far as I know, in the U.S. It's being produced in the U.K. and shipped here to their distribution center to be then, you know, to be held in in inventory. So I imagine that they're going, you know, that's probably some, they're eating some of that cost because they have to ship it from the production factory. But, you know, we, we're not uh, privy to that, but I will also say that, let's see, if we look at the U S and UK games workshop prime sites, 
those start collecting boxes that we pay $85 for and we consider $85 to be a pretty solid price on them. In the UK, they're 50 pounds, which is $64. So really what this is, is it's consistent with the rest of GW's pricing model is what it sounds yep. like. But we're for us, it's a shock because we're used to not playing that game on Forge World. From Games Workshop, their perspective, they're treating this as just any other product they sell and they're pricing it accordingly. It may not make you happy, and like I said, I if you choose not to, if you choose not to spend your money on the on Forge World products, I totally won't blame you. I think that you know, I, I'm sure that you know, you save your money and, and spend it on something else by all means. You know, and like I said, they'll look at the numbers and see what happens if if this gets them enough goodwill and and better shipping costs and stuff to make it worthwhile. But it just it looks like they're just passing that same pricing model along by making it local. I mean, technically, if you wanted to save your money, you could buy everything from the UK shop, although I think they also have restrictions on where they'll ship to on, like, the Prime stuff, which is, like, the GW Prime stuff, which is probably why having a local local pricing and local shipping makes more sense for them. So, I, I mean, I don't know what to tell you. I I understand the source of frustration and anger, but I, without knowing more about the business behind it, I have trouble building up the same level of anger in myself. Well, the big thing for me is that unlike when they did the Exterminatus Australia, like GW has built up enough goodwill with their business practices and what they've been doing that I'm like, well, there's probably a reason for this. I'm willing to let them, I'm willing to let, see how this plays out. Whereas in 2000, you know, 2010, 2011, nobody was giving GW the benefit of the doubt. They're like, nope, this is just them being greedy. So that, I think that's really on my my side where I'm willing to give them benefit of the doubt just because they've they've kind of earned it as a company recently. Right. And I think that's also what I think for a lot of people this surprised them because it, it to them it felt out of character for what the company has done. But looking at the numbers and the math, it it really isn't. It just feels that way because it's a sudden change. Yep. But if you are going to buy that sweet, sweet Forge World stuff, you are probably buying the big things, the big toys, the Titans and the Specialized Knights and stuff like that. And if you're doing that, you're probably taking it to an Apocalypse game, which is what I did last weekend. And uh, so I'm going to now regale you with stories of Siege World's Apocalypse game, which was <laughs> a ton of fun. I got invited out there by Michael Horner, who uh, was one of the organizers of Siege World, and I have only played in like one Apocalypse game before this, which was a relatively, by comparison, a relatively small one we held at Pulp Fiction like back in 6th edition when the Apocalypse rules first came out. And um, I will say this was night and day compared to that, but that was also because <laughs> at that thing, I think at that game, the largest stuff we had was what, like a Stompa, maybe a Knight, if Knights were even out at that point. I don't think they were. I don't, I don't think. They I don't were, know the no. knights were out, but I do know that uh, like Jason and I had a bunch of chaos stuff. Like I had my uh, Lord of Skulls. Yeah. Jason had some of like the the plague tower and some stuff like that, and the uh, the Forge World Greater Demons stuff like that. But yeah, it was not nearly as much big stuff as what was on the table for your game, right? And so that experience did not adequately prepare me, but. Um, I think that there's really nothing you to to be mentally prepared for apocalypse. Uh, you just basically have to go and bring your biggest stuff and be ready to throw down. And 
that was absolutely the the attitude here, and it was just like one of the f- things they did. Like the very like before first round, before even deployment started, it was basically the understanding of, okay, so we're just going to be clear here. You're going to put stuff on the table. Stuff is going to die. A lot of stuff is going to die, and that's the point of the game. Uh, th- uh, they basically had had everybody report like here's how here's what your your points are total. Here's how many points of Lords of War you're bringing. And they used that to try to even things out so that the teams were roughly the same size. Uh, it worked out to um, about 115,000 points aside, which, if you're doing math, that's it was a 230,000-point game, which was not even remotely the largest that they've ever done. In pa- they've had a couple of past uh, Siege Worlds where they, they broke the 400,000-point mark total. Um, there were a ton of Titans on the table, uh, mostly on our side. I, I ended up being on the attacker side. Uh, we had, uh, and a good number of these were like kit bashed or there were also old armor cast models. So like the old armor cast reavers and warhounds, like where the warhound actually has like the dog head rather than just the <laughs> fa- the, the square head that is vaguely dog like. No, this was actually a dog, a dog head on this thing. And then four warlord titans that were all pretty much like kit bashed or very old kits before the warlord, the, the official warlord titan was released. And then on, uh, but we had, I think one real warlord titan on our side. And then they had, uh, two real warlord titans on their side. Uh, they had a number of, uh, they had a couple of reavers, a uh, number of warhounds. Uh, they had a perfirian. They had, th- Oh, they had three brass scorpions lined up in a row. Uh, but it, also there were a ton of knights. Uh, in fact, the other side, the, the defenders in front of their wall, because basically it was like one very long table. And then there were like on our side, there were two like six foot tables that jutted out like at the edge, like near the edges. And then they had one six foot table like going back in the middle. So there was room for there was room for some depth, but otherwise it was basically a bunch of four by six tables stretched out, or maybe it was six by six tables with more six by six. It was it was a big playing area, but they had a they had a wall because they were defending this wall, and in front of one of the sections of wall they had a line two knights deep, about ten knights wide. <laughs> <laughs> and that covered one <laughs> one section of the wall. It wasn't even all of the wall. That was just one, like one, like maybe six foot section of wall. <laughs> um, I mean, the amount of power that was brought to this was ridiculous and awesome. All right, I can't bring up. Uh, Facebook is having problems, so I can't bring up names right now. So I'm going to apologize that I don't have everyone's last name. But uh, Alex, who was one of the uh, one of the other uh, organizers of the event, uh, you know, I brought in all to- total, I brought like nearly seventy eight hundred points of Tau, and that was with eight a Taunar and Riptide, like two Riptides, uh, a Ghost Keel, and Evara, three Hammerheads, a Sky Ray, six Broadsides. Um, Nine or like yeah, nine crisis suits, a bunch of like several commanders, Farsight, some fire warriors, some pathfinders, shield drones, sniper drones, stealth drones. I, I mean, I brought pretty much everything I had. A, a couple of piranhas, 
like I brought everything I had other, and used it other than like my crew. My crew were like the only thing I didn't use. And that was 7,700 points with 2,000 of that being Lord of War. And Alex looked at that and said, uh, yeah, or because they had asked me earlier how much stuff I was bringing. And I actually kind of lowballed it because I was like, uh, maybe about 5,000 points. It turned out I had more than that. But they're like, okay, yeah, so we're going to get you some more. Here's two more Townar. <laughs> <laughs> Here's two, uh, two Storm Surges. Here's another Ivara. Here's an Arvarna. Here's uh, an- another, like, two Riptides. Here's uh, a couple more, like, Cold Star Commanders, just to pad that out. So in total, I probably, I was just shy of, like, 15,000 points. So that was that was really awesome to get to play with a bunch of big toys. It's like, I would have had some flyers for you, too, but I just didn't have them ready in time. So, like, I could have had, like, a Tiger Shark or two or three. So, so they set up, they, uh, the attackers got to deploy first, the defenders got to deploy in response, and then attackers won the role to go first. And, uh, they set up a couple, there's some rules that they set up to, because this is effectively open play, because it is, you know, it's, it's not Battleforge. In fact, they said you are building unbound armies, uh, but because unbound doesn't normally include stratagems and command points, they added, uh, a few rules. So first off, you got a number of command points based on how big your army was. So uh, if you were zero to 10,000 points, it was 10 command points. Zero to uh, 1,000 or 10,001 to 15,000 was 15. 15,000 and up was 20 command points. Uh, command point regeneration would not work. You could not regenerate your own command points, whether it was, you know, like getting them back for your own stratagems or keying them off of somebody else's. You did have access to stratagems. Uh, basically as though you had like whatever units you had in your army, you had access to those faction stratagems. Uh, they did clarify you could get, uh, if you gave your unit a particular sept trait, chapter tactic, whatever, you would get access to those house abilities. So even though you're unbound, you get access to all the toys and artifacts and rules that you would have otherwise. And just because trying to build detachments for 15,000 plus points is, <laughs> yeah, yeah, just, no, just, Bring all the stuff you want. There were a couple of other rules that they had that helped the game not be just a bloodbath turn one. Because one thing they found, I, they said from doing this last year, uh, when you know right after the indexes came out, was like everybody had macro weapons. And if you don't know, macro weapons do double damage to buildings and Titanic units. That ended up causing a lot of knights and other titans to disappear turn one last year. So they changed that. Uh, for, for turn one, they had two rules. First off, macro was disabled for turn one. Basically, they, they acted like heavy weapons, which uh, the idea was like you're powering up your guns. They're not fully ready yet turn one. And that was to make sure that you weren't just like one-shotting knights off the board. The other thing was anything that was titanic – uh, could not be reduced below its bottom wound band. So, for example, a Townar has four wound bands, and the bottom one is one to four wounds. A Townar could not be reduced before four wounds on turn one. So that you're going to get at least, if you're the attack, like, if you, you're going to get at least two turns to do something with your, like, especially if you're the attacker, you're going to, you get one turn to do something at full health and one turn to do something at whatever you have left. Now there was another caveat on there though, that you also, if you, if you were the attacker, whoever went first on turn one could not, or for like weapon skill and ballistic skill, 
had to act as though they were at their bottom band so that you weren't always purely accurate. So you're, the idea is that you've moved in, you've settled up, you've settled into place. You're not like at full capacity. And then again, that was to mitigate the, the alpha strike component of the game. Now the defenders or whoever went second, it happened to be a defenders in our case did not act at their bottom band, but instead they acted at whatever we left them at. So, so if you can work somebody down to that bottom band, that's where they're going to be. But they also still have macro weapons, uh, disabled and acting as heavy turn two, all bets were off everything what you were at you were at whatever your health indicated you would be at stat line wise your weapons were firing at full full capacity and also second turn was when flyers could come on flyers could not come onto the board on turn one all flyers had to basically be held in reserve so you had an environment where think not, a little stuff would get blown up big stuff would just get crippled turn one uh, and so that led to, you know, like the Titans at least lasted till the end of day one for the most part. It was day two or on day two start, which we got through two turns on day one. And day, day, day two was turns three through five, which went progressively faster <laughs> because there's a lot less stuff on the board because as they said, things die really easily. To keep things on track, turns were timed. So we had about, I think for our turn one, we had about an hour and 45 minutes. And we didn't end up using all of that. Uh, deployment, we had a half hour for, each side had a half hour for deployment. And then we did the top of turn one, broke for lunch, did bottom of turn one, both parts of turn two, broke for the day. And then day two, we just went straight into turns three, four, and five. And... It, there were, the, the cool thing was there were a lot of crazy fun moments. So you think of this as like, it's one huge battle, but like any real life big battle, the battle is made up of a whole lot of little segments, whether it's two warlords throwing big shots at each other because they're trying to see who can take the other warlord down, all the way down to, um, because this was open play and not match play, the deep strike rule was not in effect. You could deep strike into somebody's deployment zone turn one. And so part of your deployment was making sure that there wasn't anywhere for somebody to deploy stuff in and, you know, be able to play safely. My, our opponents, especially, uh, we, there was a, Mike, a Necron player named Mike, who again, I can't bring up his last name because Facebook is not working with me. He had left a bubble in the back corner near his stuff that was just big enough for me to drop six crisis suits, Farsight, and like four other commanders. And so I deep struck all of that into his back lines. And that enti the entire game for us was this back and forth fight of me trying to disrupt his lines, whether it was killing his overlord or killing a doomsday arc, which I didn't manage to do either, but it was just this back and forth struggle to try to, to harass his lines and keep him from being able to bring everything to bear. Or there was the uh, – another great moment was uh, one of the opponents, Nathan, had a knight gallant that had charged in and killed both of my units of uh, broadsides. And he was coming in towards a building. I had a riptide right there. He was moving in towards the riptide. And then I turned three. I brought in these the two piranha that I'd been kind of holding onto for all of day one. They had been hidden – like on the bottom floor of a building, they came out and pinned him in, fired melted guns at him, wore him down to like four, like four or five wounds left. And so 
they didn't manage to kill him. He charges in. The Riptide's down to like one wound left. It's it's pretty much crippled at this point. But he runs in and he's like, I've got I'm a gallant, so he's got like the chainsword and the thunderstrike gauntlet, and he's like, Okay, I'm gonna kill one of these piranhas with a thunderstrike gauntlet, and I wanna throw it at the riptide. And sure enough, he did. <laughs> Just grabbed it and threw it like a frisbee into the riptide and did a mortal wound to it, which killed it. Unfortunately, he wasn't able to finish off all the piranhas. So there was one, he killed one of them, left the other one with like three wounds remaining. And it was there to uh, then take the night out with a, with a Meltagun or, you know, the fusion blaster. But it was just those little bits of story that were great. You know, that's, uh, I would absolutely do this again in a heartbeat. It was so much fun. Uh, I, I've talked before, like I said, I mentioned during the first half of the show, I'm a little bit getting burnt out on competitive play and stuff like the LVO friendly uh, games like that made me remember what I really like about 40K. And this was that kind of game. There are no stakes. There's no big prize for the winner. In fact, I, after a point, we stopped keeping track of who, of who was winning. There was a rule on destroying, like destroying Lords of War gave you one point for every 10 wounds they have. We, I mean, at first, like first couple of turns, we were trying to prioritize things based on how many points they'd get us. But after a point, it's like, I need to kill that thing because if I don't, it's going to kill me. Uh, like, and, and that gets you less points than you'd think because they didn't round up. So if something had 27, 28, 29 wounds, it's worth two victory points, which meant when, uh, I blew up one brass scorpion, and then the it exploded and caused enough mortal wounds to the brass scorpion next to it to kill it. That was still only four victory points. <laughs> but this is why you don't put three brass scorpions in a line right next to each other. Fair enough. Uh, but yeah, it just it was it was full of moments like that. Uh, by the end of the game, when I say everything died, um, there w- we started the game between both sides with seven warlord titans on the table. We ended with one. We started with, uh, like four or five Warhound Titans on the, on the table. We ended with none. There was a Porphyrian that died. There was, uh, the Porphyrian died. Uh, all the Brass Scorpions died. Most of that line of like 20 knights that I mentioned, I think five of them were still mobile <laughs> at the end of the game. Um, there was an entire side that was just like House Tyrannus, Knights, Helverins, and then backed up by like a couple of warhounds, those were all gone. There was a a wing of about like thirteen Xiphon fighters that came in turn two. There were like five when the game was over. Uh, it, there was a Thunderhawk that came in on turn uh, turn two. It didn't live to the end of turn two, <laughs> or it didn't <laughs> live to the end of turn three. So how many mantas were there? Uh, there were no mantas. I was the only Tau player, and I did not have access to a manta. And Alex was like, I'd like to buy a Manta. And then I've seen the stories about building a Manta. And then it's like all the sanding and all the reshaping, and I don't want to. So, hey, Rob, so the good thing with that is, in that case, since that model is so bad, we might as well just buy a Chinese recast. (laughs) You can't see his face, but he is scowling at you. I'm not scowling. I'm not scowling. He's showing his disapproval. I'm, I'm, no, I'm, I'm, Trying to just, you're not wrong. (laughs) 
I mean, I could let, get on, I could let, get on let's those put, sites and look and see. After, let, let's, after this. Let, let's put it this way. Old, the older a Forge World kit is, the the less good it is. And some yes. of that is because their molding technology has gotten better. And some of it is because those molds do not age well necessarily. So, yeah. but <clears throat> anyway, <laughs> anyway, uh, but yeah, it, I mean, it was an absolute slaughter fest and it was some of the most fun I've had in a long while it with uh 40k so um they they're they're going to do it again next year uh they are hoping to get this year they were at the north st louis uh rec uh, north st louis county rec center which was actually not a bad space it was they were basically in a big rec center gym which was more than enough space for this game plus the like 60 plus player GT they had going on plus tables for Age of Sigmar plus tables for bolt action. So, I mean, they had, they had plenty of space going on, but they're hoping next year to be in a hotel. So it'll be hopefully an even bigger space. They said one year that they, they had a big enough game that they had like half of the gym to just for the apocalypse game. And there's a big divider screen for like, you know, for the gym that is like ceiling mounted. And they said, we were actually able to drop, we just played on the floor one year, and they dropped that screen down, so both sides were doing hidden deployment. <laughs> uh, you should see, that would be Den- fun. You should see Dennis's eyes. That would be so his- fun. <laughs> That's great. And then, when, okay, is everyone done deploying? Okay, raise the screen. You have no idea where your opponent's going to be, so... Oh, that's great. <laughs> that would have been awesome. But no, th- this year was still, it was still a lot of fun. Um, and then, uh, the other, th- one of the other fun aspects of it was, uh, that there was a, everybody got a bingo card and you marked off, like, as you accomplished things in the game, basically you had, uh, achievements that you could do. So some of them were like, get your opponent, a- it kind of like some of the stuff that they have for, uh, purity seals at Iron Halo. So like, get your opponent a drink. Um, lose somebody to Overwatch. Kill someone in Overwatch. Uh, lose someone to an explosion. Fail a four-inch charge. Yes, that was actually <laughs> fail a four-inch charge was one of them. Uh, succeed at five charges in a turn, which I did as Tau. <laughs> I even sent people on suicide charges just to get that because it was going to get me a bingo. <laughs> <laughs> Man, who says strategy isn't involved in these games? It was Well, it was like near the end of the game, I'm like down to like... I was down to just to mostly scraps at that point. So I was like, I might as well, you know, it was stuff like stuff like that. It was, you know, it was just fun stuff to try to pull off during the game to get a bingo. And, you know, and if you got a bingo, you, you, everybody got a raffle ticket going in, then you'd get like two or three more if you got a bingo. And then they had a drawing for prizes at the end. Uh, they had enough prizes pretty much for everybody to get something, but they also had the rule. Like if you won, if you already had a prize, you couldn't win another one until it had gone around to every until everybody had had a chance to win something. Um, my ticket never got drawn, but but um, Necron Mike, who again, come on Facebook, don't fail me now. There we go. Facebook is playing around. So okay, so first off, it was Alex Clark was the other was the other organizer who lent me a bunch of Tau stuff, and then. Mike Stalker was the guy playing Necrons, and so Mike's number gets drawn. And so some of the prizes they had, they had, I think, a copy of, they had a, like, a Knight, they had a Stompa, they had, uh, like, Bobby G, they had a Storm Surge, they had, and then, like, several smaller pieces for, like, bits and uh, gift certificates, stuff like that. And so, like, the first things that went, like, the Knight disappeared quick, quickly, uh, the Stompa disappeared, 
uh, Bobby G disappeared, and then Mike's number gets drawn, and he walks up, and he grabs the Storm Surge, and inside, I'm just like, no! Because that's like the one one of the few things from the Tau I don't have. <laughs> and as he's walking back to his spot in line, he's like, quick hands it to me and says, oh, look, it was Rob's number the whole time. <laughs> <laughs> nice. And and I was like, afterwards, I'm like, dude, thank you so much. He's like, well, you know what? I don't, he's like, I don't play Tau. And the, the battle, the little battle that we had in the back corner with your crisis suits against my Necrons was one, one of my highlights in a game full of highlights. In fact, that is his act. That is actually his, his quote from the, the quote from, of him from uh, Facebook is that fight in the corner was the number one highlight of a game full of highlights for me. Hope to see you next year, Rob. So, so Mike gave me a storm surge, which that was totally awesome. Uh, so I will have more stuff to bring next year and I'm totally going to do this again next year because it was a lot of fun. Uh, so I highly recommend checking them out and they're going to be they're they're going to be reaching out to us to for feedback uh there like a couple of things we noticed were um that whole you can't reduce a unit to below its final wounds on turn one ended up giving us some weird side effects uh like you could cripple a unit in shooting and then it could charge you and over you couldn't overwatch it to death because you couldn't do any more damage to it so it could come up to you and beat you up and there's nothing you couldn't hit it in return because you couldn't do any more damage to it. So they may look at adjusting that for assault a bit. Uh, but you know, for the most part, the, their eighth edition take on apocalypse worked great. Uh, so, uh, I'm, I would highly recommend the, the more the merrier. I mean, literally with, with apocalypse, the more and the bigger, the better. And everybody's kind of, in sectors of the table doing their own thing. So other than having somebody acting as war master on your side to kind of give some general, let's go after that. Let's ignore this, that kind of strategy for the most part. It's, you know, it's just off. It's kind, it's not exactly a free for all cause you're still sides, but it's, it, it's you, it's less, you you think adding more people would make it qu- more complex, but it doesn't really pan out that way. It actually worked really well. And if you don't have a ton of big stuff, cause I'll admit, when you see somebody bringing, like, a whole Titan mana pool, you know, a Warlord, two Reavers, and, like, two Warhounds to the table on the other side, you're like, I got nothing for that. But some of the most effective stuff was also the, the like, the half dozen or so Basilisks that were just pounding things. Because a Basilisk has a 20-foot range, 240 mm-hmm. inches of range. <laughs> so it's like... That or like basilisks and earthshaker cannons. There's nothing on the table that's safe from them, and they also had objectives on the table that if you were within six inches of them, anything that was below 300 points could fire twice. So to the point where they had to bring out the dice rolling app because that was the only way to roll enough dice to figure out how much damage was done. I lost townars to that kind of thing. Like, <laughs> like seriously, when you have like a dozen basilisks. Or when you have like ten basilisks surrounding one of those things, and he's like, "Yeah, your town are over there. Yeah, it's gonna die. There's nothing <laughs> you can do with, under that amount of shooting. It just it it will evaporate." Uh, so yeah, it, just stuff like that. You don't necessarily have to have the biggest of big stuff if you have enough medium to strong stuff at normal 40k scale. Uh, knights are also totally great. There were a number of castellans on the table. I don't think I saw any valiants, but I mean, there were armagers and regular knights and castellans and a few of the serastus knights. 
uh, you can bring the the medium big stuff and still be super effective. And it's also fun to sometimes bring some of the smaller stuff and have those small moments of, yeah, I'm going to face down, I'm going to face down this Necron army with some crisis suits. In fact, <laughs> Richard Window, who won, uh, who, who won, uh, Midwest Conquest and he was one of the, with Tao and he was one of the, the guys arranging it because he's part of the Gateway Gamers group. He saw me come. He's like, Oh, hey, you know, he's like, Hey, Rob, how's it going? I, I was wondering if you were playing the GT and then I saw you had crisis suits. So it was like, not competitive, must be playing an apocalypse. <laughs> hey crisis suits aren't competitively good but in that's the great thing about apocalypse too it's like everything's viable because everything's gonna die so anything you point efficiency isn't really an issue and they said next year they'll probably just go straight to power level rather than points just, yeah it, it just makes more sense because it just makes list building that much easier and then you can just look at how much power of Lords of War do you have? And the, the gear, the war gear and weapon options don't make that much of a difference. So pretty much each person was, the, each person only brought their own faction then. Uh, yeah. I mean, there were some like people bringing knights and titans because they're like yeah, different yeah. titans, you know, or there was people bringing space marines and titans or stuff like that. But yeah, for the most part, there's not a lot of like, I didn't see anybody bringing like Xenos and Imperium together. Although. So, so no orcs and Tyranids. <laughs> no, <laughs> there were actually no orcs or Tyranids. It was I was the only Xenos player. Wow, that's yeah. kind of sad. It really? was it was it was all Imperium and Chaos. Otherwise, including the uh, Mastodon full of world world eater berserkers that nice. the berserkers themselves took down a knight because because twenty berserkers will get work done. <laughs> it was For twenty sure. berserkers and then two decimators that Ooh. came out of the the Mastodon. So yeah, the, so how did how did the town art do? Um, they disappeared pretty quickly because they were big targets. But mm-hmm. um, th- I had uh, three of them. So I had three of them. Two of them had the the pulse drivers. One of them had the railgun. The railgun has the main the main weakness that I know the railgun has is that it does a ridiculous amount of damage, but it's one shot a turn. Oof. So if you miss, which you're probably not going to do with the town art because it's uh, hits on a two up. When it's at full, but if they make their save or if you don't roll a lot of damage, you know, you're out your shot. The pulse driver was pretty effective. Um, they did all get pretty much crippled down to their bottom row on turn one, but because they are battle suits, you can use stim injectors on them. So I had them acting all back up to full. And, uh, they, oh, that was also another rule. It's like you could use a stratagem as much as you wanted in a phase, but every time you used it within a phase, the price doubled. So it cost me seven command points to uh, get all three town are acting at full again out of my 15. So I burnt a lot of a lot of them on turn two. And then I had I even did the thing where you have a uh, commander stand next to it and not shoot so you can reroll to wound. So just to, to make sure that whatever I hit was going to take the damage. So if backed up effectively, they can, you know, using standard tau tricks they can be very useful so um i I thought they they did well the the pulse drivers did did better the i love the railgun but i think you'd be better off with like a tiger shark ax10 where you've got the Mm -hmm. two railguns they're fire and then i think they're each heavy two or they're no they're macro they're macro two but uh yeah i would definitely take the tiger shark and over the uh over the railgun but I didn't get a chance to try out the Nova missiles. They've got a ton of range, which would be really good because it would allow you to pound targets across the table. So that one might be worth taking. The uh, 
most of the smaller guns on the town aren't never came into it because nothing they died before anything got close enough to really shoot at sure <laughs> but the uh, but yeah the ion guns were also pretty effective that was actually one of the, the the weaknesses though is that the the driver the pulse driver and the ion guns have like a 60 to 72 inch range max which on a tail table of that scale is actually not enough Whereas, like, the railgun and the missiles have a much better range. But I think the uh, the pulse driver's, like, the most consistently good. And on a smaller table, or if I had spread them out a bit more, I p- would have covered more of the table. But, you know, it's the first time I'd ever used them. So, you know, I- I'll just chalk that up to no experience with Taunars. <laughs> sure. <laughs> but, uh, I'm, but I'm looking, like I said, I'm definitely looking forward to to going back next year and uh, seeing what I can do with, with whatever I accumulate between now and then I might even, I'm, I've got a couple of nights I need to put together. So depending on what the sisters codex looks, looks like I might bring sis, I could bring sisters in Tau and, and just yeah. have a little bit of everything going in. So we'll, we'll see, we'll see what I do, but, uh, but yeah, uh, I, I had fun. I had so much fun. So, and I recommend like, I recommend people just putting on an apocalypse game because it's a way to like if you especially if you have a game store that can like lock up the gaming room like overnight because you really do need for for a good apocalypse game I really do think you need two full days just because there's so much going on unless you are very tightly timing the rounds and starting early but uh, if you have a space that you can lock up I would I totally recommend it it's it's just a lot of fun and it's just a way to kind of shake off any any of that uh, competitive funk you may or may not be in and just cut loose and just watch stuff die on an epic scale without actually playing epic scale. <laughs> and with that, we'll transition over to hobby progress. So my progress before Siege World, since our last episode was recorded before Siege World, is I finished a town art. <laughs> so I could bring one. I still have Kevin's to paint yet. Uh, that is, I've... I'm going to work on that, and my main focus right now is going to be building stuff because I've got a lot of stuff on the table that I want to get built. Hopefully, I can. I'll probably be taking Tau to Iron Halo just so I can focus on my uh, Blood Angels for uh, Renegade. But mm-hmm. uh, but yeah, so I'll be working on building those and on painting uh, painting the town art. But I did manage to get my town art tabletop ready in two days. So uh, I took a day off from work to do that and. I regret nothing. <laughs> well, I didn't take a day off. I, I, I worked from home. So like I'd work an hour and then put 15 minutes into the town hour, work an hour, put 15 minutes in the town hour, take my lunch break, work on the town hour, uh, and then go back to work, work for a few more hours, work on the town hour, and then work on the town hour all, all evening. So I didn't have my, I didn't lose any time to my commute. So <laughs> try to, to maximize my time. So yeah, that, so I, that, and I also started, uh, yesterday painting my, uh, my kill team terrain so I can get my sector Imperialis stuff done. So I can actually have a passable looking kill team set to play on. And, uh, so yeah, that's going to be me. So, uh, I haven't done a lot of, uh, painting or working on like 40 K stuff because at Gen Con, I took a, I took a seminar, uh, going over 3d printing and after Gen Con and once my funds recovered from buying a town art, um, I, uh, I bought a 3D printer and I've been playing around with that in an effort to work on being able to do uh, terrain and cranking out 
uh, well, terrain, mostly terrain, but also like, you know, accessories and things like that. Like I printed off a couple of, uh, things like Imper uh, inquisition symbols, uh, and printed those off in plastic. They came out really well. So the idea is that hopefully we'll have, uh, stuff like that, that we'll be able to like potentially give out as faction tokens or prizes or little, you know, the statues that like Jason makes for, from iron halo, maybe, be, you know, be able to use those for terrain. And, uh, I've already been, over the last couple of days, I've cranked out like four little like small towel buildings that are about, you know, about two levels high. So, you know, we could put those in there and have some themed uh, alien t uh, terrain tables and stuff like that. So uh, that's been a lot of fun. But uh, once I get uh, once I get that dialed in a little bit more, I'll start working on painting my uh, Death Watch for Renegade Open. But uh, but that's kind of it for right now. I guess for me, um, pretty much. Uh, Rich and I got a tooth and claw box, and so I've got the well and the kill team from Space Wolf. I've got that put together now. So now that I've got we the Space Wolf half of the tooth and claw box, that's going to be my next project to get worked on. And then also since it is September, I need to actually get an Iron Halo list hammer finalized, and then start painting and priming a lot of things to make sure I get. One, things ready for the winter time to paint during the winter because I can't prime. And two, make sure I have an army ready for Iron Halo. Uh, I have been working on the some of the Gene Stealer cult stuff from the Tooth and Claw box. I put together the um, uh, the aberrant that came out of that. Um, have you made the Abominant yet? And, and then, yeah, I also made the Abominant. And they turned out... They're some pretty neat kits, and uh, uh, aside from that, that's that's pretty much it. All right, so that pretty much wraps up episode 180. Um, I'm thinking, let's see, we've got, what, probably one more episode between now and Iron Halo. So we'll see. I might see if we can tag in somebody from maybe a Dark Angels Codex review. If not, yeah. we'll figure out something something we can do but uh yeah so uh we'll see you in a couple of weeks and from all of us here at preferred enemies i'm rob kevin dennis and richard good night good gaming and whether you're going to texas or going to st louis and uh have fun don't sweat the forge world prices too much good night Preferred Enemies is an Undergopher Radio production and is licensed under a Creative Commons Attribution Non-Commercial Sharealike 3.0 Unported License. Our theme music is Metal Slug 2 Super Vehicle 001-2, No Need to Reload, originally by Takushi Hayamuda and remixed by Roataka, courtesy of OC Remix. It can be found at ocremix.com.